0: The Cultists present...
1: Cinema of Cruelty.
0: And this week on The Cinema of Cruelty, we ask... What happens when a fading Hollywood star sets out with $42 million and the entire unwavering support of the Church of Scientology to remake a Star Trek Deep Space Nine episode as a sword and sorcery extravaganza? What happens when that 117-minute-length film is harvested by two diametrically opposed scriptwriters working from L. Ron Hubbard's 1,050-page rambling sci-fi pulp space opera, and the recipient global audience remains convinced that the followers of the great volcanic alien overlord Xenu are trying to brainwash their children into joining the next generation of Sea Org through cinema. Would there be a war? A battle? Perhaps for the Earth? Let's find out. Because today we are watching Roger Christian's 2000 film, Battlefield Earth. So sit back and grab a radiation infested rat while we sink our jaws into the raw and wriggling results of John Travolta's celluloid asteroid of an homage to those great alien races hovering out there in the stars. Brought to you by all the Dutch angles, every single tilted canted one of them, gnawing at rat candy, man animals the failed prayer tactics of Mall of America mannequins, the smoldering remains of Barry Pepper's almost career, that time John Travolta brought 20 pounds of ham to a gunfight, and the ruinous perils of psychiatry. And of course, the safe word today is Zenu. Anything to add, Benji?
1: I actually just got off the phone with reps from Scientology. We are now enemies of the church, so we got that going for us.
0: Yeah, I kind of feared that might happen, but everyone needs a legacy.
1: You're traveling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of space. space. <laughs> Boy. Sometimes
0: I doubt your commitment to Sparkle Motion. <laughs> <laughs> I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my God. Disappoint.
1: Jesus. Wet. Oh, hi, Mark. Patient. Ha ha ha. Hello, London.
0: Hey, Benji.
1: Benji? <laughs> B- Benji?
0: If anything, after we sick this Church of Scientology on us, we might want you to be known as Benji, right?
1: <laughs> London, while well, you were learning how to spell your name, I was being trained to conquer galaxies. The listeners at home probably couldn't see, but my hand gestures on that line were just marvelous. Uh, just right up there.
0: Ego that matches John Travolta's is really I, the takeaway Though
1: God, Here. I can only hope. <laughs> Battlefield Earth, you know, when I suggested that we do this film, I wanted to see like if another podcast I liked had done this episode prior to us. And searching for Battlefield Earth on a podcast website, you realize so many other people have talked about this film.
0: I'd figured, yeah. yeah.
1: So I realized, okay, got to have to bring it today, and... He won't. <laughs> okay, moving on. London, how did you first hear about this movie?
0: I actually think I might have first heard about it from you. <laughs> i can't remember fascinating i can't remember but i had seen clips of it before mostly in hotel rooms when flipping through channels
1: yes i've seen it that way too oddly enough
0: those canted dutch angles of john travolta's manically (laughs) giggling face would come on the screen And I somehow knew that it was Battlefield Earth, but I had never actually watched Battlefield Earth until you wanted to do it for this podcast. Yeah. Well, so I mean, this that, was my inaugural experience with watching it from. Start if
1: you to catch finish. Battlefield Earth flipping through the channels, you're gonna know it's Battlefield Earth because nothing else looks like Battlefield Earth. Nothing else is the other really blue slash purple movie with a lot of Dutch angles. It's just yeah. Battlefield Earth. That's it.
0: It has a distinct look. It has its own rhetorical style, which is great. I I will get into the, the joy of the terrible choices this movie made, which turned out to be great choices. <laughs> I do think I did hear slightly about Battlefield Earth in 2000 when it came out for mm-hmm. being linked to the Church of Scientology. And so we're going to put a pin in that for now. But that's, that's what I'm going to bring to this episode later is we're going to look at what in the world is Scientology and is or is it not in this film?
1: It so. sounds like the name of a kind of "For dummies style book that you would write. It's just <laughs> entitled, What the Fuck is Scientology?
0: That would be my, yeah, info for dummies <laughs> anthology. What the fuck is... dot dot, dot. Today oh, yeah. it's going to be Scientology. I'm probably not going to do it justice, but it's fine.
1: We can only try. <laughs> Oz to God, I almost saw this movie in theaters.
0: What do you mean almost?
1: I almost saw in theaters. I remember when this movie came out, it was the spring of 2000, yeah, of 2000, and I think I saw trailers for it, I just thought, oh, wow, that looks interesting. And at that time in 2000, if you weren't trying, you weren't going to see bad reviews for a movie. You know, it's not like today where, you know, you hear about the bad movies as they come out. Like as soon as we heard about the snowman, all that we heard was, this is a fucking insanely bad, crazy, weird movie. But back then, you didn't necessarily always hear that. If you were watching, you like at the movies with you know Siskel and Ebert, and that sort of thing, you would find out about it. And Roger Ebert's review for this movie was absurd. He says something like, "You know, the director has learned from other movies that better directors use Dutch angles. Unfortunately, he has not learned why they use them." <laughs> but at the there's to- so
0: many reasons. Yes, so many reasons. So many great reasons. None of them are in this film.
1: And I think I asked my girlfriend at the time if she wanted to go see it, and uh, her response was just like, Battlefair to Earth, that sounds stupid. I'm like, oh, uh, uh, okay. Sounds had-
0: exactly like a girl you would have dated.
1: A girl I would have dated in high school, to be sure. Then so- she makes
0: a lot of bad choices.
1: <sighs> yes, like the choice I made to talk to you today about this movie. Watching this movie, it, yeah, for that one. not a bad choice. I gotta say, watching this movie was not a bad choice. I'm glad I made it. Uh, but I didn't see this movie in theaters, and I wouldn't hear a little bits and pieces about it. When movie reviews on the internet and YouTube were becoming a thing, this was like one of the first movies people would often cover. And I think eventually in 2007 or 8, I saw the riff tracks of the movie, which was, you know, the guys from Research Science Theater 2000. You could download an MP3, sync it up to the movie, at home and they would make fun of it, which was which was cool. And then I think after a little after that, I'm like, you know what? No, I'm curious. I need to go into this, you know, just just raw, just pure, man. We're not gonna do this with Rift Tracks. Let's just experience Battlefield Earth, man. Uh, also reading the damn book. I did read the book back in high school, believe it or not, because at the time you could find these promotional copies of it. They had the green cover with John Travolta's face on them. And I remember thinking to myself, like, oh, okay, yeah, it's science fiction. Uh, you know,
0: cool. So you have now read through Battlefield Earth as a book twice
1: now? I did read the whole thing in high school. Forgot so much of it. Decided, okay, let's go ahead and read the parts that pertain to the movie this time around. Which turned out to be the same number of pages as The Snowman. But I would say I enjoyed reading The Snowman a lot more than I enjoyed reading this. This is is Lafayette Ronald Hubbard, or as I like to call him, Laffy Hubs. As,
0: Laffy Hubs.
1: As Laffy Hubs says in the introduction to this book, this is his tribute to pulp science fiction from what he calls the, the golden days of science fiction, when the writers like, you know, early Ray Bradbury, Robert Heinlein, uh, Arthur C. Clarke, you know, those cats were writing the pulp sci-fi back in the 30s and 40s. This is his tribute to that. And... Okay, it makes sense as a tribute to it, but there's a reason books like that aren't really written anymore. Is that tastes have changed, and what we want from science fiction has changed, and the standards have changed from the days when he was getting paid. I think, you know, the famous quote from him is, I'm tired of getting paid a penny a word for writing. The real money is in religion. Yeah. (laughs) And though, honestly, a penny a word... I mean, considering how many starving writers there are out there, a penny a word doesn't sound too bad.
0: There are a lot of words in his writing. Yeah. So dude made some bank. He also, I believe, still holds the title of publishing the most works of any author. Yes. I can't remember what the exact stats are, but he was a prolific
1: dude. London, what is the best thing about this movie?
0: So the best thing about this movie to me was what I'm going to call the satirical anthropology lens of one culture looking at or observing another and drawing erroneous, wrong conclusions about that culture based on observational patterns. And I love that about it. There were clips that I would actually use to teach in an ethnographic class. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was great. I was not expecting it. There's a certain sort of irony there considering they are making fun of belief structures in a way that isn't very self-reflexive. So we can pin in that because I will talk about that later when I'm talking about Scientology. But it was really fun in that way that you had the cyclo's drawing conclusions about humans humans drawing conclusions about humans there's mm-hmm. there's just a lot of great stuff there what for you is the best thing about this movie
1: there's a scene where Kerr played by Forrest Whitaker is staring at Kelly Preston John Travolta as Turl, ask him don't you have some work to do and his response is just no <laughs> it's like one of two moments in the movie that made me laugh legitimately. Like, I think I'm, I'm supposed to laugh here, and I actually am laughing here. Nice! As opposed to the rest I of the movie. I think this is what comedy is. I, I think they got some comedy in here, and it, and it makes sense. The worst thing about this movie is that it is not as ridiculous as it could have been. And had it been as ridiculous as it could have been, as I would have wanted it to have been, I don't, it obviously would not have been the movie that the, they were trying to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were trying to make Pulp Fiction for the year 3000, as John to put it, or like Star Wars, only better, or <laughs> the Schindler's List of Science Fiction,
0: Yes, as that's he my once favorite.
1: called it, which, okay, to be the Schindler's List of any genre is not a good thing. Let Schindler's List just be Schindler's List. You don't have to try to emulate Schindler's List. I did read,
0: yes, that the screenwriter had commented once that John Travolta had read the script and called it to him. Oh, this is the Schindler's List of science fiction. And my brain sort of halted in that moment. (laughs) I could almost hear these sort of grinding sounds. As I tried to work out what exactly that might mean,
1: (laughs) I'm still not
0: sure how he arrived at that conclusion. I just can't. Yeah.
1: John Travolta strikes me as a very nice, charming guy, but he also strikes me as a completely unaware individual. By unaware, I mean he is completely not self-aware at all. He's very much unaware of what he is saying half the time. But he definitely strikes me as someone who would not really grasp the comparison that he's making when he says something like, this is the Schindler's List of sci-fi. John, nothing should ever be the Schindler's List of science fiction. You don't need to say that to impress people.
0: Yeah, I just don't know if he meant quality or if there's he's thinking... Yeah, no, we're we're just not even going to go into Holocaust uh, yeah. in space. So no, no, no. The don't. worst thing about this movie to me, and I, I might be the only one in history to say this, but I'm hoping there's somebody else out there that might say it too. The well, worst thing, many
1: of the things that you say are the only time someone in history has said that thing.
0: Yes, because I am a unique and singular individual.
1: So was the meteor that killed the dinosaurs.
0: That the sequel to this movie did not happen. I (laughs) I want the sequel to Uh, Battlefield Earth. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to see this carried through to its conclusion. It would have been. This movie needed more.
1: I would have loved a universe where they filmed both parts of it like Lord of the Rings style, uh, back to back. And the first part is still this movie. But then there's the other half that they've already filmed and that they realize they now have to release the sequel to the worst movie that many people have ever seen.
0: Yeah, we'll get into that a little bit later too. Just the backlash criticism of this movie as the worst film of the decade or the worst film of the century, worst film ever made. Yeah, it's not. I don't think it warrants that criticism.
1: It's not the worst movie of 2000. It's probably not even the worst. You and I, we have seen movies worse than this. Far, far worse than this. If we tried, we could probably find a movie released the same weekend in 2000 as this film, and that could be worse than this. This is not the worst movie of, of all time. It, we'll, we'll kind of get into, yeah, yeah, definitely get into that. So we'll go ahead and uh, start talking about this movie. Uh, London, would you like to give me like just a kind of a broad, broad strokes overview of what Battlefield Earth is about?
0: Yes, I would. It is Planet yeah. of the Apes. If the apes were humans, and the humans were a giant, evil, overlord race of aliens called cyclos. So that is the really short version, and a slightly longer version is that it is the year 3000, and man has fallen into some sort of caveman-like state amongst miniature golf courses that are now giant erected statues to forgotten gods and the cyclos alien overlord race has come to earth to mine it for gold and it's going to start a war between one sad fellow who just really wants to get out of his cave and save the universe and bring about independence day and he's going to do it through the power of radioactive uranium.
1: Yes, that's bra strokes. That's battlefield earth. It's planet of the humans.
0: Planet of the Humans.
1: Planet of the Humans. Okay, so well before we get into like kind of the scenes and beats by beat of this movie, there's a few things that we should like just say happen a lot that if we pointed them out every single time it happened, we would never get through this movie. One of them, as we mentioned, is the Dutch Ankles. Yes. Almost every single shot in this movie is a Dutch angle. I would like to... Some people do cuts of things that randomly happen in movies. I would like to see a compilation of the scenes in this movie or just the shots in this movie that are completely level. And I'm sure it would be maybe one or two shots.
0: Right. And the Dutch angle to just kind of give a little bit of what in the world that is. Yes, what is a Dutch angle? When the camera sort of tilts itself on its axis, canted angle is another sort of Mm -hmm. word we use. And so the image on the screen comes at a very harsh angle. And this was used in German Expressionism. Hence, the Dutch angle is actually kind of a bastardization of the German word for German. Which is Deutsch. Yeah, and so it doesn't actually have anything to do with the Dutch people or Mm. Dutch cinematography whatsoever. It comes from German Expressionism, where it was used to really tilts the audience off of its axis to create dramatic tension in a character's interior space. There's a whole list that goes on. Yeah. None of that is used really for any purpose in battlefield earth. It's unless I guess you could say the entire film tilts the audience off of its central axis, and it just sticks with that until it becomes the norm. From what I was
1: able to unearth from interviews with the director, uh, Roger Christian is that the, The point of all the Dutch angles is, one, to try to make the film look like a graphic novel. Uh, He's said that a few times, like he wanted to make something that looked like a graphic novel, okay? And it was also to fit the tall and shorter characters into the same frame, which there are so many other ways to do both of those things without just tilting your camera at 45 degrees the entire time. But you know what? His choice...
0: But this uh, is the best way.
1: <laughs> this is the best way. This is the only way. This is the way.
0: The humans are going to be regular human-sized, and the cyclos are but seven to nine-foot aliens that are on these sort of stilts. Mm-hmm. And so I would be more inclined to believe, while well, we had to get them both in the frame, if any of these Dutch angles were actually getting both a human and the cyclos <laughs> in the frame. But most of them are very close-up sh- shots of John Travolta's face at an extremely canted angle, cut to another cyclist at an extremely canted angle, or (laughs) they will be canted shots in which there are two same-sized cyclists in the shot. So to get the different-sized actors in here just doesn't actually make sense as a rhetorical argument when you watch the shots that use Dutch angles in the film. So, I don't know.
1: The second thing that happens a lot in this movie are what's called a curtain wipe. Uh, This is a transition from one shot to another, where the middle of the screen begins to separate and we are seeing the next scene as the previous scene pulls away. And there's nothing wrong with a curtain wipe in concept if it's done correctly. This movie does not do them correctly. This movie does them... It seems that should not have wipes of any sort. Uh, Most people compare this sort of technique to Star Wars, which has various wipes in it like sometimes it's a wipe from left to right some from, from top to bottom sometimes like it's a circular dissolve a variety of different ways that the wipe moves across the screen but in battlefield Earth it's just a curtain wipe every the exact same kind every single time that it happens
0: at least they're consistent
1: they are <laughs> consistent uh, watching it kind of reminded me of a 22 jump streets when Shadding Tatum's character is making his football highlights real with his buddy, and they just keep using the star wipe over and over and over <laughs> again. It reminded me of that, where the editor pulled like the, the button that said curtain wipe, and he was like, whoa, that's amazing! I am never going to stop using that.
0: It's the year 2000, we have this new Photoshop program, and it lets us <laughs> curtain wipe. <laughs> Shit's the future.
1: Oh, yes. Uh, The third, you had the third. What is the third thing that we don't need to point out because it's just always happening?
0: Uh, I'm probably going to point it out anyway, though, because it's (laughs) it's another best thing about this movie is the manic evil villain laugh that all of the cyclists, but John Travolta in particular, are just going to (laughs) do throughout the entire film. That's just the response to everything. The punctuation to Ugh. every cyclo sentence Ugh. is to just manic evil villain laugh.
1: So it's good, great. so good. Okay, it's so good. Let's go ahead and put on uh, our 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 swim trunks and get ready for a deep dive because it's time to talk about Battlefield Earth. So. Opening up, we have our production bumpers, More, one for Morgan Creek, another for the now defunct franchise Pictures, and there's yeah. opening scroll. Opening scroll, you know, I, I like. I will say throughout this as we talk about this, like, let's put a pin in that because I want to come back and talk about, put a pin in that opening scroll. I want to talk about that later on. Moving on. We get our opening title, Battlefield Earth, a saga of the year 3000, as the, the camera is moving through space down into Earth. And a subtitle shows up just to let us know, man is an endangered species, even though the opening scroll kind of, you know, already explained that to us. But whatever, whatever.
0: Well, so I did and I didn't get the opening scroll. So I will also just kind of preface this by saying... I watched this movie in two variants. The first one, I found an upload on Daily Motion that I suppose was a German upload because all of the opening scroll stuff was in German and there were some German subtitles throughout it. Mm -hmm. And then I decided, no, I I really need to purchase this movie and watch it in high definition. And so I watched the low def sort of videotape copy or something and then i watched it in hd surprisingly way better in hd they did a really nice job remastering it in hd and the Mm. cinematography becomes a lot more interesting yeah but my hd purchase copy did not have the opening scroll so i did indeed need man is an endangered species okay fair enough so i don't know
1: yeah interesting all right well anyway We get that, go down into a little village, uh, no subtitle to explain what the hell this village is. Some people are heading into a wooden gate looking thing, and a woman who... I kept thinking, like, is that Lass Morissette? That looks like Lass Morissette. I
0: guess she did, kind of, yeah. Just a
1: little bit, yeah. Nancy Morissette, I'm going to call her Nancy Morissette, is waiting for someone. Old man's like, what the hell, why are you waiting? Like, come on, we got to get in. Can't put the whole village in danger to wait for this one guy. He's going to come. Well, no one shows up, so they go inside. And what happens next? Does this okay, guy so jump over the gate?
0: I'm immediately confused by this opening setup, yeah. right? Because we're given it's the year 3000. Oh, and you're then confused we cut by a scene
1: in this movie? Buckle some up.
0: sort of medieval sword and sorcery Uh fantasy landscape of these dudes who live in caves and wear (laughs) kind of polyester animal skins. And they seem to be afraid of something that's oncoming. They need to get in this cave, which we never will get a follow-up to. Mm -hmm. There's nothing coming for them in this cave. Their cave is fine, so I don't know about that. But she still doesn't get in the cave. And then there's these strange cuts back and forth that are set up like a reverse angle shot between her and a dude who's high up on a mountain, (laughs) sliding down his horse on a mountain. And at first I was like, wait, that's weird. That just made it look like she's looking at this guy sliding down a mountain. Classic shot, reverse shot, come on. She's still watching, looking up. He's still sliding down the mountain on his horse. (laughs) And then he does eventually slide into camp, and you're left realizing, oh, no, she really was just watching him. High up on this mountain, I guess. So he comes back, no consequences. And they get into this little cave, and the old man gives him a lecture about the demons that are everywhere. Because the world was once ruled by giant ancient evil Lovecraftian style gods that have since abandoned the earth and left them to the demons.
1: Mm-hmm. And Johnny asked the cave, have any of you ever seen a demon? A monster? Huh? Huh?
0: Yes, he's our scientific skeptic.
1: Yeah, except he doesn't ask them like I just asked them. He asks them, "Have you ever seen him? A demon, a monster?"
0: Yet he's kind of hopping around in the dirt. We're yeah. setting up the Planet of the Apes thing here.
1: Yes, uh, he, he's not we'll,
0: quite learned to be a biped.
1: As we'll learn later on, Barry Pepper plays this guy like turned up to eleven, basically the entire movie with a few few exceptions. The old man tells him, "We have to stay here. It is our fate." And Johnny says, only if you believe in fate.
0: Yeah, fuck fate, man. Fuck fate. That's going to be a thematic thesis statement of this movie. Fuck fate. He's also been up in the mountains gathering all the medicine he could find, ambiguously, to try to get back in time to save his father, which he doesn't do because he's told, Johnny, your father was taken in the night. And his reaction is to just chuck this medicine off the side of the hill and slow-mo scream no. And I'm thinking, okay, you just spent a lot of time collecting all the medicine you could find. Maybe let's not just toss that off the side of a mountain. Maybe other people might need it, Mm -hmm. asshole. But no.
1: Johnny is not the most likable of characters. And in a movie where you should be rooting for him, that's a problem. Yeah, I'm
0: I'm team cyclist all the way.
1: Yeah. Oh, for sure. Especially if you read the book, you're like, fuck, man, the cyclists have it rough. Jeez, that's a tough time. Well, Johnny decides, you know what? Fuck y'all. I'm out. And decides he's going to ride off and search for something better. And Chrissy's waiting for him. She's like, I want to come too. And he's like, uh, lols, you got the vagina. Stay here.
0: She's like, bitch, do you not think I'm as strong as a man? You fucking misogynist. And so he hypercorrects. Yeah. Says, no, I think you're stronger than all the men which is why you need to stay in the village. You're like, you right. know
1: what? This is like my thought watching the movie and reading the book. Just let her come with you, Johnny, for God's sakes, man. Just go. She's she not doing this village down any the good. Uh, whatever. So we he had he he- her. Yeah. He heads out and I think almost immediately like hears something, a plane going overhead. He's like, "What the hell is that?" His horse freaks out and runs into something that he immediately flashes back to that a wall painting that we saw like five, not even five minutes ago. It's like, oh my God, and starts beating the crap out of it with what we soon realize is a golf club. And he realizes what he's beating is just a dinosaur from a mini putt place and says, oh, so you're supposed to be the monster we're all afraid of. Ha! And at first, the first time watching this, I thought to myself, oh, so he's wrong and... The cyclos are actually the the monsters that we're worried about. But going back the second time, I noticed the cave drawing is exactly the same as the monster he's fighting or as the dinosaur he's fighting. So his people apparently really were freaked out by a fucking putt-putt, you know, figurine.
0: Yeah, there's kind of a confusion here in terms of the mythos the humans have set up, whether or not they're even aware of the cyclos as the demons that fly overhead, or if they just have their own independent mythology that's unrelated to mm-hmm. the cyclist. Cause a lot of them do seem to be focused on these statues that are yep. just sort of left around
1: mm-hmm.
0: as petrified old ones or people who have been turned to stone because they angered the gods.
1: Makes sense.
0: Which is fucking awesome.
1: <laughs> so Johnny now having left off the supposed monster tries, among other things, to eat, I think a golf ball. A golf ball which didn't deteriorate over a thousand years. I think a third, a fourth thing that we should have mentioned is that get used to things that should have deteriorated over a thousand years that did not deteriorate. That's gonna happen a lot in this movie. Uh, it happens in the book too, but I think the book is a bit more it is more clear on what is preserved versus like the things that decayed exposed the elements. So there's a slight difference there.
0: I'm going to throw out a possible defense for the novel. even right. though I haven't read it as to why certain materials had not disintegrated. So this was coming out of a time period of Cold War America, mm-hmm. right? This novel came out in the 80s, I think. Uh, 83
1: or 80, okay. no, 82. My bad. 82.
0: So it had been constructed by a Cold War writer and during the time, during the height of the atomic craze, there were the introduction of all of these material plastics, new material plastics, that were supposed to be indestructible and indefinite. And so it is perhaps in accordance with L. Ron Hubbard's understanding of the material universe that the plastics that came about during the 50s and 60s, like the ones used in miniature golf courses, would never deteriorate or vanish.
1: All right. Laffy Hubbs, you probably knew a thing or two.
0: Monsanto so, Plastics. They will outlast us all.
1: They shall. One word. Plastics. <laughs> I can dig it. Johnny is visited by what I can only describe as more cavemen. Because uh, the first thing that they do is thrust spears at him and go, ooh, 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 ooh. And then they just speak perfect English. What One of the guys almost seems to have some sort of vague New Yorkish accent. He's like, I see that you are having a good time. The gods were good to you. You, you are good. You did well in the hunt. We did not do well in the hunt, so we must be going.
0: This will be the introduction to Carlos, who is my favorite character
1: Carlos movie. And his buddy, Rock, whose name I did not catch until the second time through. The other guy's just, he's named Rock. I'm like, okay, cool. And Johnny's yeah. like, you've seen the gods? Oh, we can show you the gods. I'll, I'll give you some food if you show me the gods. Okay, come with us. And they head into Denver. Because apparently this entire time, Johnny and his tribe were like, Twenty minute horse ride from Denver, Colorado.
0: Yeah, they're just uphill mm-hmm. from it. <laughs> I'm gonna pause it later that they're they're just hanging out in kind of Rocky Flats plant site. Fair enough. But yeah, yeah Denver has a mall. And these men are mall dwellers. There. And that's the scene I wanna put a pin in because I fucking love this <laughs> mall scene. It's great. Uh, but they're they're walking through it. Johnny, there are mannequins everywhere.
1: Yes, there are mannequins. Johnny walks into a piece of glass, and he doesn't understand what glass is, so he just walks right into it, which, as a joke, is fine on its own. But have him walk into a semi-clean piece of glass. The glass he walks into is cloudy and wet, and it has water running down it. So I could understand him being confused by what he's seen, but the idea that he, could, he thought he could just walk through the weird, cloudy, drippy thing is really stupid and
0: have you never walked through fog or mist, Benji or do you just think it's a solid impassable (laughs) thing in the universe
1: only in Chicago that's fair yeah Uh, they sit down a few times we've heard people call Johnny a greener which I'm like oh Johnny is into the green okay this caveman gets it yeah but he explains oh they call me a greener what's that mean because the grass is always green on the other side which is an odd way to get there to get to that.
0: You're... So proverbial expressions yeah. they lasted into the new age. Dozens of years in the future. They never die either. Plastics and proverbs. But
1: they are uh they begin to argue. He's like, Oh you left your woman behind, huh? Well tell me where she is so I can go get her. And this upsets Johnny and they're about to fight, but oh shit. Guess what, baby? The cyclos are here. Cause
0: with motherfucking lasers.
1: Motherfucking <laughs> lasers that I guess they've set to stun because Carlos gets hit with one of them and he just kind of like does a, a a low gravity float and the whole scene goes green. Everything is green now. It's all green lighting. And well, actually, what I will put a pin in this scene because I want to come back and discuss it a little bit uh, later on. But suffice to say, the humans run away. The cyclos are there and we only get glimpses of them at first. They're shooting at them. Rock is killed. Johnny calls for his horse. His horse just shows up in the mall. Like, okay, cool. We didn't see how the horse got in there, but neither here nor there. And eventually, Johnny and Carlos are captured and put into a flying ship of some sort and taken away. And taken away to human processing. Because we get a subtitle that says human processing. Not just human
0: processing. Denver. Denver. Human human
1: processing. (laughs) processing man, the endangered species. He is uh, set in, and Cyclo comes in, kind of grunts at him, and we get, like, a little bit of the Cyclo language, which, to me, sounds like a combination of Klingon and Dothraki, because it's all very grunting, very guttural, just... I kind of
0: like it, actually. It sounds kind of rad.
1: I would have appreciated, like, if they had expanded on that a little bit more. I... Don't get the vibe at all that they worked out any vocabulary for these guys or any sort of language structure. Because uh, that, to me, is like what makes something like Klingon, Dothraki, or the elven languages were like really interesting, is that there is a pattern to them, and there is something you can kind of work out uh, from them. But this is... No, not that. Uh, they get them some air hoses. Johnny, he starts running. Johnny runs through the hose room, because uh, the, ho- the humans are being hosed off. Happens. You gotta pose off the humans. A little, they're a little dirty. And it's the
0: first one of the first few steps in prison systems, at least in the US. So for sure. the, yeah. the yeah. tracks. Yeah.
1: yeah. And he runs into the true heroes of this movie, Turl and Kerr, played respectively by John Travolta and Forrest Whitaker. Turl picks up Johnny by the neck. <laughs> <laughs> kind of saying things. Uh walks out and says, uh, what the hell is this? And we find out that Johnny, he's he shot a guy. He We see it earlier, but it's not very clear that he shot someone. We just see him grab a gun very briefly, and the guy is like, looking shocked, then John runs off. Oh. So
0: that scene is actually a lot more clear in the German version. <laughs> oh, really? Because this is another thing that I noticed from the German version versus the US HD download, is that the German subtitle the Cyclos language. Whereas the English one I had just had parentheses speaking foreign dialect. <laughs> and so I don't know <laughs> if the German subtitles just added this speculatively or if there actually was a sort of attachment of these are the, these are what the, the Cyclos are saying. But there's a whole dialogue when Johnny steals the gun and starts to run. And one of the Cyclos says to the other they're not worth anything to us if they're dead or they can't work if they're dead or something like that. And then sort of switches his gun to stun and shoots him from afar. And then they bring it back and they're grumbling about how this Johnny dude tried to shoot one of them. So it's, it's weirdly a lot more clear in the German.
1: I did find uh, a version of the script by the second writer of this film, Corey Mandel. And in that script, that dialogue you just described is present. Okay. And it says cycle number one, and like speaking cyclo, he's no good to us if we kill him.
0: So the version that you watched did it have English subtitles of the cyclos, or no. did it also?
1: No, there is nothing there. Just it's just like not Just okay. that you're like, I I guess that's they're saying it to stun. I I don't know. Interesting. So yes, Travolta he heads out uh, with Johnny. Throws him down, and the dialogue s- just snaps, like, there's no, like, fading, there's no transition, it's just like, What is the meaning of this? As he throws Johnny down on the ground. Put a pen in the whole language thing, we'll also come back to that. Uh, the guard tells him, like, oh, he he shot the other guy. And Travolta just doesn't believe it. He's like, I'm not like, look, man, I'm still in charge of security here. I'm not going to have it on the record that this guy was shot by a human. Except he doesn't say human. He says man-animal, which we hear over and over and over again or in the in the movie. The book, they never call them man-animals. They just call them humans or man. I don't know why this movie decided that we have to hear man-animal over and over again. To
0: reduce them to yet just another beast to capture and put into cages and feed in troughs throughout the rest of the film.
1: Yeah, you could do that without giving them a stupid name that sounds ridiculous 500 times in the movie. Neither here nor there. So, Terrell, he doesn't believe that a human could shoot a cyclo because he doesn't think that they know how to use guns. So he's like, well, let's just put this to the test. Gives Johnny his gun and then tells the other guard, "Okay, take the gun from him. I really don't want to do that. You better do it. Okay, get shot." Terrell's just like, huh, "How about that?"
0: Anyway, we're gonna broad stroke this a little bit more. So, <laughs> are you quite done? Uh...
1: All right, end scene.
0: So Travolta has a buddy <laughs> sorry, bartender that he kind of fucks over a little bit. Then mm-hmm. we're going to cut to a scene in that Travolta thinks he's getting to retire. Wait a minute, go wait, back wait, home.
1: what bartender?
0: Uh, the initial bartender that his son just got into an academy or something like that, and Travolta sort of well i could not file a report on your behalf for a friend only we're not friends it's really an inconsequential scene it doesn't matter it must be because
1: that's not in the version i watched weird i've heard this that i actually did find this in my research that there are different versions of this thing that made it into different home video releases the scene you're describing i remember that was in the theatrical cut And then when this thing came out on DVD in the States, the director himself took that scene out.
0: Weird. Okay, yeah, the version I saw had the scene in it. Wow, okay. I bought it off of iTunes in HD. That's the version I watched.
1: That is so bizarre. Okay, well, so that's not there. So what (laughs) happens after that scene that I didn't see?
0: So he is going to what he thinks is his retirement or reassignment announcement amongst a group of individuals. Mm-hmm. Only it turns out, nah, he apparently fucked the senator's daughter or did something to the senator's daughter. It's ambiguous. He did something
1: to a senator's daughter. So That's all that we know.
0: He's stuck on Earth now, not just for one more cycle, but for 50 more cycles with infinite possibilities for renewal,
1: with infinite possibilities for renewal,
0: the infinite possibilities for renewal. This is uh. going to be repeated a few times. It's going <laughs> to echo throughout the chamber. Actually, a... I guess it's endless, not infinite, but it's, it doesn't It's something matter.
1: like that. Endless options for renewal. Endless options for renewal with endless options. Endless options
0: for renewal. Yeah, and all of the other cyclists laugh at him yeah. because this is hilarious that he's stuck there.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm going
0: to come back to this scene because this is the genesis of my conspiracy theory of where Scientology actually appears in this film, and it's not in the way that people think it does. Oh, all right. um, So, yeah, we have this little little showdown scene, and Travolta grumpily stares him down, and then he realizes, I'm going to have to tap into my superior intellect of psychological warfare that I learned at the Academy to get all the gold and fuck these people over, because the cyclists... They like
1: gold. They are big fans of gold. As we find out, Kerr Kerr was expecting to be the new head of security. And so he hid a report from Turl that says, hey, there's gold in them there, Hills. And he was going to wait for Turl to leave so that he could take all the credit. And now that Turl's there again, he goes through the files. He's like, oh, you little bastard. You're going to fuck me over. The goofiness there. But as it turns out, no, there's not just gold in them, hills there's uranium, which cyclists can't get close to because it makes their their breathing gas explode, which they keep just referring to as breathe gas.
0: Yeah, and they absorb it through these great little metal nose pieces, Yeah, nose jewelry, which are actually kind of great. It's a fun little aesthetic variation from a giant gas mask that would have hindered the actors' faces to be wearing it throughout. Oh, absolutely. So it's it kind of it's, a fun costume.
1: For all, I think the costume in this movie is definitely not its problem. I, people could treat it, but I'm like, no, there's nothing wrong with what we're seeing here. This is all fun stuff. It's different than what's in the book or anything else, but whatever, it's, it's still fun to see.
0: Mm-hmm. I'll give it so, that. So apparently Cyclops' kryptonite is radiation which is kind of curious because they do live and travel intergalactically throughout space, and ionizing radiation is everywhere in space. (laughs) So I I don't know why that's not a problem for them.
1: uh, Laffy Hubs, he had odd views on radiation or an odd understanding of it. Uh, Fun fact, in the 1950s, Laffy Hubs wrote a book called All About Radiation. Where he claimed, among other things, that you can build up a tolerance to radiation and that his group, Sea could cure it with oils. Yes! Yeah! Which, uh, I think, like, when the book gained some popularity, scientists at the time had to come out and say, Yeah, no. N- no. 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 Kind of like the APA had to come out when uh, and say, Yeah, Dianetics? No. No. <laughs> No.
0: But psychiatry is evil, Ben. It's evil.
1: Uh, as far as I could tell, Elron Hubbard, Lafayette Hubs, didn't have a problem with psychology until the APA said he was full of shit. Yeah, that is like... because
0: they're evil. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. So while this is going on, John is actually, he's been running around. Uh, he's escaped from uh, the hoses. And at one point, two other cyclos rip his breathing tube out. And he's starting to suffocate like uh, 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 they're like taking bet. I think they're taking bets on when he's going to run out of air, when he's going to die. And so he runs off. At one point, he runs through a smelting area because there's all these other humans in there with these gigantic hammers. They're banging on something, uh, which got me thinking like, okay, so if he can't breathe, there's no oxygen. If there's no oxygen, how the hell is there fire in this place? That's a nitpick. Whatever. Moving on.
0: This is also going to be sort of curious because later Travolta is going to devise a plan of so we have these gold deposits deep in the earth, only it's too radioactive down there for cyclists to go down and interact with without their breathing tubes blowing up and them just sort of disintegrating into mm-hmm. nothing so why don't we teach the humans how to mine the gold? And it's going to be hilarious that humans might be able to learn how to mine something. Even and that's though... going to be confusing because isn't that what's happening here? Aren't humans mining in this scene or these other cyclists?
1: Yeah. When we get into the differences between book and movie, it'll become a lot more obvious, but moving along, uh, Johnny, he runs, at... <laughs> there's this awesome moment where he runs down a hallway and after Turl and Kerr are talking, Turrell uh, checks out a security camera, looks at the view screen. The image on the view screen is canted. So even security footage in this planet is canted. But the shot of him looking at the view screen is canted the other way. So because of this, this security camera is the one level shot at the entire goddamn movie because it's canted back and forth.
0: I'm going to posit a theory right now that the canted angle is actually the way that the cyclos retinas work and so ocularly this is how the cyclos see the worlds is that a sharp diagonal
1: okay all right fair enough i cannot disprove that
0: the science works out
1: (laughs) the numbers check out man okay uh johnny he runs off uh and after what seems like way uh, he sprints for a long time when he really shouldn't be able to breathe good on him though he finally gets out and runs down a, a tunnel, and he acts like a monkey going crazy in a zoo. And as he climbs on the grate of at the end of a tunnel, and just like, ra 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 at the top of his lungs. Other cyclos come up, and they are about to kill Johnny when something shoots them from behind. Out of the shadows steps Turl and Kerr, and Turl says, huh, well, this one seems above-average intelligence. He's a feisty one. We'll have to get some leverage on him. And again, the leverage, anyone who's heard about this movie has heard that the word leverage comes up over and over again.
0: Yes, which that's important because that also feeds into the sci-fi, Scientology, Battlefield Earth Conspiracy Theory. But...
1: I feel you. I feel you. So, Turl decides the only way to get leverage on Johnny is to find out what do humans like to eat, which you have humans. You should know what they already like to eat. There's a, but they don't because
0: yeah. there's the scene where they're feeding them and just these sort of pumps of really gross slop into their food troughs. And an individual is there who apparently rules the prison system of the humans. <laughs> and he says, this is how it works, man. Cause you're new. I'm going to explain it. I eat first and then my mini, and then maybe you can eat afterwards if there's some left and greener is like nah that's that's not how it's gonna work man and they get into a prison fight and he bests him in the prison fight and i'm just sitting there going well it's good to to know that the hierarchical prison system of agro-aggressive male-on-male violence still is the same in the year Uh, 3000 that whoever can punch harder gets to control the way that shit is run and done amongst the prisoners so Mm -hmm. johnny johnny wins out because he is the stronger alpha male in this situation. But, yes, when Terrell decides I need some leverage, so begins the most circumvented, convoluted, (laughs) psychological experiment plot (laughs) to hit the cinematic screen, and it's so trivial that it becomes great.
1: (laughs) Uh, What is the plan? The plan is to let some humans think they've escaped put some tiny little button cameras on their clothing and watch them as they head out into the wild and see what they choose to eat. Because now that they're out in the wild, they can eat anything that they would like. And after three days of running, they get to what we find out is Aspen. I actually looked this up. You can, in fact, walk from Denver to Aspen in less than three days. So, uh, Excellent. Points for realism on, uh towards the movie on that one
0: good for them yeah nice research eventually Maybe all checks out
1: johnny's like hey some rats grabs a rat and just eats it raw because they can't make a fire or they don't have time to make a fire i don't know johnny's just really hungry and they see that and Turl just says oh well see there you go he loves raw rats He could have had anything he's gonna have a raw rat instead and Kerr is understandably like uh that looks gross <laughs> It's not even cooked. Not it's just even like, cooked.
0: Hey, if the man animals like raw rat best, that just makes our work easier. We can get that for them real quick. And so that is going to be the magical piece of leverage that they use for the rest of the film. Is going to be great scenes of John Travolta just holding up rats in front of Johnny's face. Kind of like, you want this cookie? Well, do what I say, and you'll get this raw rat. And John's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Uh, And it's great. It's a great interaction.
1: They head off to get the humans. Now they have that, you know, that edible leverage on them. They pick them up. John almost tries to jump off a cliff to evade the aliens, but no such luck. We cut to Turl's office. Some uh, humans have come in along with Johnny to work in the ceiling. Turl grabs Johnny puts him in this chair in a kind of a weird isolation chamber room, and we get the weird CGI alien. Oh my
0: god, the saddest alien in the universe. Tell tell us about
1: this alien. (laughs) Tell us about... uh... I I fucking
0: love this alien. So I I do wish the the CGI had been a little bit different because it doesn't fit with the rest of the aesthetic of the movie at all, so it's really jarring. But he just appears, and he's very... He's very humble, and he's subservient. He's like, I am but a lowly Klinko, and if you're listening to me, I am no longer, because the greater race of the Cyclos has obviously wiped us out and exterminated us all, but I will do my duty, and I will talk to you about the lost language arts. And he, just keep, he gives this whole monologue about, I am a sad alien Klinko who is probably dead because all of my people are exterminated, and this is where you're remembering the John Travolta's Schindler's list of sci-fi coming in. You're like, this seems getting really, really uncomfortable. And yet we're still going to use this little dude. Anyway, it's just a narrative plot device to say my genocide wiped out race of aliens is going to teach you how to save yours. I'm like, well, that's, that's a weird use of these poor aliens. Um, <laughs> And so he's going to dissolve into a little ray of light that's just going to get shoved into Johnny's face as he starts to just learn all the knowledge of the universe.
1: More or less. He, he's basically learning how to speak cyclo. That's the main point of it right now. He's getting some background info on the cyclos and how to speak their language. And after a while, John Travolta comes in and the movie is like kind of doing a back and forth thing uh, with the the language where it's like, it's right, right. you understand me, rich, yeah, you hungry little fella. So we get the, it's almost effective uh, in the movie as showing as I said, us. I
0: really liked what they were trying to do there. Yeah. I sort of wanted them to do more of that throughout mm-hmm. the film so that we established this as a okay, we're going to transfer into English just for your sake, audience. Like, we're yeah. going to bring you in here, but we're actually speaking this guttural language.
1: Right. Uh, yeah. So they do that. Uh, <laughs> he he keeps learning. The other humans come in. They're like, dude, are you okay? He's like, oh, I'm better than okay. I'm learning things. This is our ticket out of here, man. And hops back on. I know on calculus
0: the now. I know
1: calculus. <laughs> <laughs> it's... It's so crazy to me, like, that there is something more absurd than that bit in The Matrix where, like, Keanu Reeves gets five seconds of info in his head. He's like, I know Kung Fu.
0: Nope. I know calculus.
1: I know calculus. (laughs) It might as well be that. It might as well be, yeah, the the hooked up whatever. And he's explaining Euclidean mathematics uh, to his cage buddies. They're just like, the fuck are you talking about? They're like, dude,
0: not not the most important thing right now. We're still locked in a cage. I'm glad that a triangle is a universally understood symbol among everybody but us lowly humans it's still not going to help us break out of this goddamn cage. Oh,
1: God, yeah. And they, so they begin to sneak around Turl's office the next day, and they find out Turl is not very good at keeping his closet locked because it says, uh, here, try this eight-digit code. Oh, that didn't work. Try it backwards. Oh, yeah, that worked. <laughs> like, Are oh.
0: you challenging his security practices? Because he's the head of security. <laughs> Benji, he went to the academy (laughs) for years. He was
1: trained for this. Just, I love that it's always just the academy. Not, there's no like qualifier to that. It's just the academy. You wouldn't last a day at the academy. Like, okay, I guess not. I
0: understand advanced psychological warfare practices, like putting your password in backwards. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody thinks of that shit.
1: Meanwhile, Chrissy is sad. And we're oh, yeah. back and in we've the We've forgotten village. about
0: Chrissy entirely. Very,
1: very briefly. <laughs> and she's like, oh, bummer. Nothing to do. And a, and a horse rides up. I thought that this horse was dead because it looked like it had been shot in the mall earlier. But no, the white horse that Johnny rode out runs back in. Chrissy's like, oh, no, something happened to Johnny. And so she runs out. Old village elder is like, you can't do it. You, you, you can't go. Uh, Meanwhile, Johnny is back on the uh, he's back in the learning machine and we get one of the famous lines in the movie where Travolta just shoves a bunch of rats in his face. He's like, do you want lunch? And just Johnny has no response. He shoves the rats in his mouth. Moving on. He's
0: just trying to give him a treat. You know, it's just that miscommunication of understanding uh, other
1: cultures. Find out in the next scene that the humans understand picto cameras. That understand how they work because they get a recording of turl saying something that they can use as leverage against him maybe i don't know
0: yeah so we'll we'll speed this up a little bit because the humans devise a plot basically that if we go back and try to learn everything we can about the cyclists maybe we'll learn how to defeat them and overthrow their evil empire Meanwhile, Terrell is still going to be on board with this whole let's teach the humans how to mine for gold thing so we can send them down into the radioactive caverns of doom. And so this is going to happen simultaneously where they're just going to go down into the radioactive caverns of doom and pretend to mine while really they're just writing calculus on the ground and sort of learning about the fact that perhaps the cyclists are endangered by radiation. Terrell deciding that he needs to put this guy in his place and show him you have no hope here brings him to the Denver Public Library where he finds amongst the ruins and the busts of like Jefferson or something. I couldn't really tell who that bust was up. That he picks up the first book he finds, which happens to be the Declaration of Independence. And he decides, no, today. Today is when we are going to celebrate our independence day and so he is inspired to go to fort knox and get all the planes
1: that is that's uh, that's we're jumping ahead a little bit there we'll i think we
0: should that. jump ahead we, we're going a little too detailed i think oh
1: well, i mean isn't this movie too detailed i think that, no, I don't think it has enough details. That that does come along there. There's a bit where we sh- we find out that Turl has captured Chrissy, and he knows that Chrissy is Johnny's gal because Chrissy has a very bad drawing of Johnny that could be any guy with hair, really, uh, mm-hmm. which there are a lot of those out there. But eh, whatever, he sets up a mining camp and tells. Okay,
0: all the guys in this film look exactly yeah. the same. It's just a bunch of it hairy is just blonde a... guys. Yeah, it is just a bunch of pale-ass white dudes in polyester animal skins with long, shaggy hair. Yeah. There is very little diversity happening in the remains of the human population on the planet.
1: So, uh, but yes, they set that up. They set up a mining camp. Uh, John explains the concept of splitting a team up uh, to Carlo. Uh, and they head off uh, first to Washington. Uh, there's a bad ADR about, like, this was our, our nation's capital whoop de doo uh, We see some maps. They explain, oh, yeah, they couldn't attack uh, our areas because there's radiation there. Oh, we'll just go back there. No, that'll kill us eventually. We're going to die. Somehow it hasn't killed them for a thousand years. I don't know what the ticking clock here is, but...
0: Well, it seems to be that initially up in the Rocky Mountains, all of the elders, including his father, were slowly dying of radiation poisoning. So they were slowly dying out themselves. It just took a lot longer.
1: Took a thousand years. I'll do it. I'll do that. It'll do that. They get to a, a Fort Hood or some base uh, where they're like, we got to find something to blow these guys up with. And they decide, we got to find a nuke. And they go and they find a nuke and guns and tanks, Harrier jets. Some cavemen are along for the ride and they find a flight simulator that will teach them how to fly a Harrier jet. Johnny actually asked the head caveman, can you... Use this to teach your guys how to fly the planes in a week? He just says, yeah, piece of cake. Like, yeah, okay. you know. Yeah, piece of cake. Sure. Piece of cake. Piece because of cake.
0: Because even though they don't yet know how to fly military aircrafts, they do know how to use virtual simulators. That's something that they already
1: know how to piece do. Of, piece of cake. And uh, just as an aside, I did look up a little information about uh, Harrier jump jets and... First of all, no, you could not learn how to fly a Harrier jet in a week. Not only that, experienced fighter pilots who have been, like, in the Air Force, or the Marine Corps is, like, the only branch of the military that uses Harrier jets at this point. Even the guys who have been in the service for years still have trouble adjusting to Harrier jets because they are apparently unforgiving things to fly. So, yeah, there's... This is not not in the book it's not even in the version of the script I read. I really believe the whole Harrier Jet thing was something added in at the last minute just to put a little bit more action into the movie. There are hints of reshoots. Like, you know, hair looks a little different. I'm like, was that a wig? Was that a different wig in this scene? You know... It... So
0: what's the plan initially?
1: Well, the plan in the book and in the uh, script that I read, the humans just use the Cyclos' weapons and machines against them. That That's basically the obvious thing that they would do because the book actually states that they went to a military base and found most things there decaying or broken. Uh, they try to get like, they see if they can get some lights working, but Johnny's like, well, no, all the machinery would be dead. All the light bulbs would be, would have like decayed hundreds of years ago. So yeah, yeah it's uh, trust me. The book is stupid in other ways. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> But the whole Harrier Jets work a thousand years later is definitely not in there, nor is it in the first uh, the version of the script that I read. Huh, all right. Oh, yeah, rather, rather odd. Uh, okay, but they grab some planes. They, they grab some planes. Uh, meanwhile, Turl, he's uh, he, he's bribing the manager of the planets. a uh, character I really thought should have been played by Paul Giamatti. Would have been awesome. The planet ship guy, they keep calling him. <laughs> we skipped ahead a bit, but that's okay, because why bother? After they've got the Harrier Jets, they go to Fort Knox to get some gold. They get into Fort Knox very... They really just knock down the door, and there's this very obvious dubbed-in line where I think one of the, the caveman says, let's hope that the cyclos didn't see through this lead ceiling to the gold to explain why the cyclos have not found this huge stash of gold since gold is the most important thing to a cyclo. Johnny delivers the gold. Turl asks, like, why is it in bars? Uh, we just thought you would like it in bars. Well, since you rat brains had so much extra time, I'll need it seven days earlier. Okay. And that's, that's the scene. Turl doesn't think anything of the fact that they were able to make it into bars. Like, whatever, you know, Turl, he he, he doesn't have time for such, for such details. He's, like us, he's got to move on, got to get going here.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when we get going, all right. So basically, the plan becomes to take these Harrier jets and crash one into the earthly Denver atmosphere that the cyclos have erected around their base so that they could breathe Mm -hmm. in their base. And so they're just going to. Yeah, rush that good old air oxygen straight in to the core.
1: And during that, like, while that's happening, uh, Johnny is on the ground and he's getting the humans out of their cages and they're going to, like, riot a little bit to get the cyclos outside without their breathing masks on. So when the dome does blow, uh, it's going to, like, fuck them up and they might die. Or they're going to have to retreat back into buildings and they just won't have access- easy access to, you know, their breathe gas and that's going to fuck them up. So when Uh, all
0: else fails, you just throw a prison riot.
1: There you go. Prison
0: riots are always the answer.
1: When she gets out, like he lets Chrissy out, and I want to point this out because she has such a strange line, where she gets out of her cage and she says, Johnny, you know that I don't believe in fate, but I've always known this would be your destiny. Which, not believing in fate, but always knowing that someone had a destiny... Those are kind of mutually exclusive concepts that would be like saying, you know, I've been an atheist my whole life, but every day I thank God for what I have. You can't do both of those things.
0: This is why we didn't let her ride a horse into <laughs> the battle in the beginnings. It it's would be shit like this, man.
1: I mean, if I asked you to stop, corroborate and listen, I mean, you couldn't do all three of those things at once, could you?
0: Thanks to the wonders imbued within the world by the great Vanilla Ice, I would argue that, yes, now we can do all three of those things at once, because Vanilla Ice deemed it so. Well, some people have Xeno, some people have Vanilla Ice. We all have our own gods, Benji. He just does. Just let it be. But we digress. So...
1: that's one does. Yes, one of them is
0: going to crash into this. The other one is going to hijack some sort of Cyclos ship and take a dirty bomb to Cyclos to blow it up with radiation. Because once again, cosmic radiation, even though it's even more ionizing than uranium, not a problem. So we're just going to fuck up their atmosphere Uh, with uranium.
1: Terrell blows his own arm off because he does. Eventually, Carlo does blow the dome. Uh, Turl, he calls the home planet to try and stop all this, uh, but they don't. Yeah, Mikey goes off with the bomb, bomb blows up on Cyclo, and the whole planet is gone and vaporized. Uh...
0: Basically what I just said.
1: Yeah, yes. Just uh,
0: drawing it out. Just drawing it out. I tried to out. make this go faster for you guys.
1: Okay, you know what? That's what editing is for, asshole. <laughs> I'm not gonna edit out what I just said. It'll just be like a little bit of silence and then me saying, and that's what editing is for, asshole.
0: Uh-huh. Okay. More awkward so... silence. Yep. So basically Cyclos blows up. Johnny cries because Carlos is is dead.
1: Chrissy comes somehow. by, kisses him. It's the only romance we get in the entire movie. Except
0: uh, for the romance between Johnny and Carlos. I was shipping that hard throughout the entire thing. Fair It was enough. working for me. Yeah. I went on AO3 to see if any fanfic had been written. It Well, actually, there were a couple of fanfics on Archive of Our Own on Battlefield Earth, and they're all in Russian, which I find interesting.
1: Whoa. The story behind that, I think, is got to be more interesting than this movie.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm curious what it is about the Russian audience that stand picked so, this.
1: Uh, so we find out Turl, irony of ironies, is now caged up at Fort Knox, surrounded by gold. Oh, oh, oh hilarity. Uh, Johnny says he's keeping them alive for leverage because he thinks the other aliens might come looking for him. And instead of wanting to hunt humans, he can just give them Turl and they'll want him more than the humans or something. Uh, mm-hmm. Kerr is there. He's now head Cyclo because he's helping the humans understand Cyclo technology. He left. This has
0: not been previously set up at all. Oh but no! He apparently has at some point turned on his cyclist brethren and become the main technological advisor for the humans.
1: Not so much. No, no, not not so much. He laughs at Turl. He says like, "You may not be in luxury on Cyclo, but you finally got your gold." <laughs> It goes on for like five minutes like that. Echoing
0: throughout the golden barred chamber.
1: And credits. That, in a nutshell, a very large, very complex, very detailed nutshell is Battlefield Earth. So... So it was good talking to you about that. Uh, (laughs) I'm gonna... Okay, so there are a few things I I wanted to to talk about with this movie first.
0: Yeah, let's go back to those pins.
1: Let's let's check out those pins. So, the pins I had in the opening scroll, what I wanted to talk about there, the opening scroll of this movie is just... It's just a black background, green letters, they scroll up, I guess, in the version of I saw, It's the first thing that we see after the, the company bumpers.
0: It was for me in the German one as well. Okay, like, yeah. Like said, the one I had in English just didn't have
1: it. Right. So what did it say? Uh, it basically just... It, it tells us what we're going to find out already. It's the year 3000. Cyclos run the planet. They want gold. Uh, humans are an endangered species, which we're told later again on that other subtitle. So maybe like that's why they put that Man is an Endangered like Species subtitle later in the opening, because they weren't really sure if they would use that opening scroll, because mm-hmm. it's pointless and stupid. But I was just thinking about it when I saw that. I'm like, okay, we know that opening scrolls can be good and can be fun. You know, you can have something like Star Wars, where it's the first thing you see, fanfare, the title goes up and it like moves in three dimensions and it's awesome. Maybe that's not the tone you want to set, fine. Maybe you do something like Blade Runner. Blade Runner has an opening scroll. What's different there is that Blade Runner's opening scroll comes after a little bit of the credits, and we hear some of that Awesome Vigela's score from Blade Runner. The score sets the tone, we get the producer credits and all that, and then we get the scroll, and it's just, it's 2019, they're replicants, this is what replicants do, this is what Blade Runners do, but the text of it is broken up in good paragraphs that makes Excellent, you know, economic use of bold titles, of italics, of breaking the text, uh, adding some text is read for emphasis. So you get good music, you get the good text, it works. This movie doesn't do that. It looks like someone just typed this stuff in at the last minute. So that was, it just bugged me so much. We have great examples of how to do something like this to open the movie, and it just shoots itself in the foot almost immediately.
0: This movie does try to be Star Wars and Blade Runner, Planet of the Apes, and The Matrix. And so Mm -hmm. you can sort of see where it takes different rhetorical strategies or tries to take different things that those four movies did visually and strategically and just sort of mix them into the movie. So... I don't know. They're probably like, well, these started with it, so... (laughs)
1: We
0: We gotta put one of those in, too. I
1: think I mentioned earlier Roger Ebert's famous line that the director of this movie knows that other directors use Dutch angles, but he doesn't know why. You can really take out Dutch angles and director and replace them with any other element of film and other member of the crew, and justifiably, that's still true. You could say, like, editor of this film, has learned that other editors use opening scrolls in their films, but they don't know why. So I think that that really does sum up a lot of this film. Uh, Tell me about the mall dwellers, London.
0: The mall dwellers. Alright. So, the mall dwelling scene remains my favorite scene in this film. I've told you before, I think, about one of my favorite books from when I was a child, and it came out in the 80s, and it's called The Motel of the Mysteries. And it's this weird little satirical book about a group of archaeologists sometime in the distant future after some apocalyptic cataclysmic event on Earth where they are trying to excavate an area. I think it's like the Las Vegas Strip or something. And all of this trash is piled up. So it's an illustrated book. And you could sort of see the old monuments to the gods is what they... Conclude they are with the big McDonald's sign and the motel signs. Uh-huh. And once upon a time, humankind had erected these giant billboards that they built high up into the sky so that the gods might see them, right? That's the conclusion that they draw. And they have found their way into a motel or the entrance of a motel, and they are going to excavate this quote unquote tomb and derive ideas about the humans that were based off of what they find in this sealed tomb, which is just really a Motel 6. And so we get these skeletons that are positioned in places on motel beds or in the bathtub, and these archaeologists are deriving information about how, oh, well, at one point they carried these plastic cards with their identities on them that also depicted their affiliation with which god they associated whether it was Citibank or MasterCard. And so just a whole list of just conclusions that are drawn wrongfully, but also in a strange tongue-in-cheek, understandably based off of previous historical and anthropological Mm -hmm. and archaeological practices. And... This scene is trying to do that as well, and in some ways it does it really well. So when they're walking into the mall, the believers are talking about the gods that are still in the sky shining down and blinking at them, right? These stars, basically, that are in the sky that are these old gods that were once on Earth. They still have statues, giant statues erected of them in the square, and so we see different just overblown statues, which we have in our modern culture, that... We could see perhaps why someone might conclude that those are giant homages to the gods. There's also plenty of stories across world religions about gods that get angry at humans and turn them into stone. This is a Greco-Roman thing. It's a Christian thing. And so we have a precedent for that. And so when we're walking by these mannequins that are strewn throughout the mall and the conclusion is that Now, those guys really angered the gods, right? (laughs) They were just struck down in their place and turned to stone. There's that tongue-in-cheek awareness of how world myth tells some pretty crazy great stories, and often things are pointed to as evidence to support these stories that if you know the actual sort of stuff behind them, becomes a lot more mundane. And so... I do love that about this film, that it's sort of setting up this tongue-in-cheek look at the gods are this weird story construction that humankind tells themselves when science can actually provide answers. This becomes curious when thinking about this as a movie with quote-unquote Scientology undertones, because... Scientology also itself has some very wild Genesis myths and things, and so it's an odd choice to poke fun at kind of crazy mythological origin stories when this is supposed to be a film adaptation of the founder of a religion which itself also has some wild stories. Origin mythology stories, just like any world religion does. So it was an ironic tone, an unintentionally ironic tone, but still in isolation. Really great. This is also where we see a lot of 2000s influence of the Matrix and then also Blade Runner Resurrection. There's going to be green filtered light everywhere. Everything's going to be a little slow mo. It looks a little dark city, a little Matrix. In the video, quality version it was egregiously green. <laughs> Everything was green. in the HD version there was actually a lot of variance in the lights and mm-hmm. the gradients and the different sort of tones of light. It was a lot prettier. It was a, a much more interesting shot in the HD.
1: No it's a it's a that's appropriate because that actually takes me to my next pin uh, the scene where we first meet the cyclos when they're shooting the, the uh, humans. This, to me, is an example of the movie almost being really good because it's a really well shot scene. The use of star colliding and contrast is really good. I don't know for sure what I was seeing was full HD or not on this, but it looked really good. The cyclos, we only get glimpses of them at first. We only see them in silhouette or in shadows. That's how you do your monsters. You always show them in dark rooms or in dark shots. Don't give us the whole thing quite yet. It does a really cool job with that. Uh, The way that they stop down the footage sometimes and it's stepping the slow motion is a really cool effect. I've looked into a little bit of Roger Christian's earlier work and he uses this really well elsewhere too. So if the rest of the movie had stuck the landing on its visual style like this scene does, it would have been really cool. But I don't think that they had time for that. My theory is that this was one of the first things that they shot. And they spent some time with it. And then they realized they only had, they had less than three months to film this thing and then had to speed everything else up because that, I looked it up. This movie shot from July 5th of, of 1999 to September 25th of that year. So less than, yeah, less than three months to film this thing. By comparison, the matrix that came out the year prior that this movie was trying to emulate in many ways had a nine month shooting schedule. With you know, pre- with post production going on almost simultaneously,
0: you could also see that this is the scene that really draws visually from a lot of better sci-fi films, yeah. and
1: so. Oh, Johnny's run! Like at one point, he runs through a bunch of panes of glass when he shot. Yes, it, it's the Blade Runner. Blade run. Runner. <laughs> it is absolutely like the first replicants run through that those shards of glass on the L- on the streets of L.A. when Deckard is shooting her. It is yes. almost shot for shot the exact same thing
0: they are trying to do it and there are shot for shot moments from the matrix they're also walking into the mall a very escape from new york kind of feel Mm -hmm. and so there's just things yeah that are going on here that they're borrowing visually and i don't know if later on they had anything to borrow visually from as strongly that they sort of worked in and thus it kind of takes on its its own unique aesthetic that is a little bit lesser than that mall scene.
1: Very much so. So tell me, London, uh, about this human processing plant in Denver.
0: The human processing plant in Why is Denver? it interesting
1: they would select Denver, you know, given its history with radiation?
0: As, as the location. So this is the other thing I got strangely excited about, was the fact that it flashes Denver. And my first thought before I see this radiation plotline unfold, is Denver's kind of a strange choice. Denver doesn't get enough love as a location in movies, really. You don't see it often. Mm-hmm. And yet it made a ton of sense if, it's, if we're going to go with this radiation and gold thing. So if we're looking for the intersection of radioactivity and gold mining, the Rocky Mountains slash Denver is the place to be. It is the third leading... Deposit of uranium in the US So that tracks Uranium is in that soil (laughs) A lot Uh, We still mine for uranium actually In the Colorado area today The thing that is also Sort of strangely interesting That I don't think L. Ron Hubbard would have been aware of at the time to the extent that we are now is that outside of Denver remains one of the most residually radioactive places in the U.S., Hmm. not because of the uranium mining, but because of this place called the Rocky Flats plant, which was a plutonium processing plant all throughout the Cold War that uh, was the location of where the AEC, later the DOE, in conjunction with a couple of private companies, would manufacture the plutonium disks that went into atomic bombs. So the actual plutonium core of atomic bombs were manufactured outside of Denver at the Rocky Flats plant. And so that becomes kind of a weirdly cool thing when you are looking at a group of individuals who, cosmic radiation aside, has ionizing radiation as their kryptonite and somehow they decided to colonize right in the heart of radioactive america outside of nye county nevada that'd be the other one that's just (laughs) gigantically that would be like the funniest thing is if they had said it in nye county but barring nye county the fact that yeah they said it outside of denver i'm like well that's fun there is a lot of radioactivity outside there
1: there you go okay uh the other thing I wanted to mention briefly was the way that language is used in this. And I this was really occurring to me when we first meet Turl, and there's that abrupt shift from the cyclo-talk to English-talk. And really, what I kept thinking about watching this movie was, how could you do this better? How has this been done better? And there are a number of ways to do this better than what the movie gives us. You can take the approach that really the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies took, which is just the whole universe speaks English. It doesn't matter if we're in America, if we're in Germany, or if we're off on Thor's planets uh, we're in Midgard, uh, we're hanging out with the Gardens of the Galaxy, everybody speaks English and you just never, no one ever questions it. And really, I can't remember ever, anyone ever watching those movies unless they're being really nitpicky and pedantic and saying like, oh, why do the aliens speak English? That doesn't make sense. Oh, there's it-
0: always some asshole yeah. somewhere that there's, brings that
1: up. There's gotta be someone who says that, but they're not movies about different alien languages. They're movies about explosion, boom, spectacle, and it's fun. And you're not meant to worry about that. This movie apparently chose not to do that. So what do you do? And the way that they show the language, it's not all consistent. Even in the scene where we have Turtles switching from cyclo to English really quickly, There are guards holding Johnny, and they're still grunting in the cyclo-language. In the scenes uh, in the bar, where Turl tells Kerr he needs to learn how to spell your name, that whole thing, we, in the background... We got this
0: scene where he's clutching all of his drinks. That was one of my favorite moments. Uh, He just (laughs) sweeps up all of the radioactive-looking green, glowing goop, and he just clutches it to his chest.
1: If you had ever had Kribango, you would clutch it close to your chest, too, London. It's just good stuff. But even in that scene, there are Cyclos in the background grunting and laughing in the alien language. So is the alternative, then, do we always have the aliens speak Cyclo and only the humans speak English? I don't really think that was an option because you have a star, John DeVolta, he's got to speak English. There are actually a lot of different things they had to adjust because of John Travolta, not, I don't know if it was at his request of the producers, but the makeup artist was going to have a lot more to put on John Travolta's face. And they're like, no, man, he's the movie star. You got to, we got to sell that face. Don't hide his face. So really compared to all the other aliens, Travolta has the least amount of prosthetic work done to his face. Even Forrest Whitaker has a lot more stuff covering his face. Mm -hmm. All the other aliens have weird gunk uh, all all over their skulls. Uh, Travolta His is the cleanest, so, you know, it's because he's the movie star. What are you going to do? Yeah, that just bugged me so much throughout it. My idea would have just been everyone speaks English. Remove any subplot about or any plot points about how Turl doesn't speak English. Everyone just understands each other. And don't make it a thing because it's so distracting when you're trying to tell a crazy sci-fi story
0: that would be a huge chunk of the movie then, because if they all could speak the same language, then they'd be able to understand man and ask them questions and teach them out of mind very easily, yeah. as well as ask him what kind of food they want to eat. So we wouldn't get the great psychological experiment of let's set them free and see what they, they choose to eat first. I would be uh, okay
1: with uh, with that not being in there. And you can still have those like so crazy, important. like learning chair scenes because they have to teach them how to mud.
0: I can almost see in a, in a more well done way, if <laughs> the language barrier, it becomes a huge point of the dehumanization or the lack of understanding of the two cultures from both sides. And when Johnny learns the Cyclos language, that's when he learns that he needs to sort of understand them better And it had kind of an Eli Roth Hostel feel, where it turns out in the end, our main character in Hostel actually speaks some German, and so the German dude has a harder time torturing him. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what they were going for, but they definitely needed to push a little bit harder on it and find a way to really play with that interplay of language switching a little bit
1: more. The list of things that they were going for in this movie is long and thick.
0: Yeah, because they had a lot of stuff that they were trying to draw from, right? So you read this book. What uh,
1: what the fuck was your takeaway from that? Differences between book and movie. Like I said earlier, the dumbest things in this movie are not the book, but the book still has some stupid things in it. The book starts off a little bit like the movie does where Johnny is... He's burying his father, uh, who has just died, and he realizes, you know what, the animals that we hunt for game, there's lots of them. They have they have babies. They reproduce. Humans in our village don't seem to reproduce. There's something wrong, and no one else believes them because everyone in his Is ta- it that
0: goddamn radiation?
1: It's that god, and it's, yeah, as it turns out, almost everyone in his town has had radiation poisoning at some point in their life, but he doesn't just because he happened to not go to a certain water well his entire life. He was such a rebel all of his life. He always like went to a different stream to drink and everyone else went to this other stream that was closer and they got very gradual radiation poisoning because of that. Go figure. He heads off. It's kind of the same thing where he like Chrissy wants to go with him. He says, no, Chrissy says, if I don't hear from you in a year, I'm coming after you. He's like, Uh, okay, fine. There's a much longer time frame in the book too. As it's perceived, it's not really clear in mm -hmm. like, how much time has passed between Jenny getting captured and the attack, but whatever. Uh, Jenny heads off, and it like does seem like he's just like within a week's ride of Denver. Meanwhile, he runs into Turl. Now, Turl's a little bit different in the book. Turl is actually, he has the first line of the book, which is man is an endangered species. Uh, he doesn't work with Kerr, Kerr is a much more minor character in the novel. But he's a friendly cyclo who actually becomes, he does become friendly with the humans, but it's much more gradual and it's not as abrupt as it is in the movie. Turl has discovered that there is a vein of gold that's been unearthed because of a landslide in the Rockies. He's the only one that knows about it, but he also knows there's radiation there. He already starts to plan to use humans to do that. But the really big difference there is that no one has ever seen a human among the cyclos like the cyclos know that humans are a thing in the same way that you or i we know that komodo dragons are a thing but we don't interact with them very often if at all
0: maybe you don't okay,
1: fair enough anyway turl sets out he says okay i'm gonna hatch myself a plan because i want to get off this planet and the other thing is, Turl is not, like, forced to stay on Earth because he may or may not have, he did, because he did something to a senator's daughter. He's on Earth just because no one higher up gives a shit about where he goes. And his obsession with leverage makes a lot more sense in the book, because he understands that the Cyclo society is the furthest thing from a meritocracy that you can be. Everything is based on nepotism and who you can bribe. So he just understands. If I want a future, I have to use leverage. I have to bribe people to get off, uh, to get off of Earth. And that's what he But also
0: to get off. He really does (laughs) seem to enjoy the psychological warfare manipulation. Oh, that is,
1: that's there too. The funny thing also about the book is that in the dialogue of the book, no, there's a lot that's like said in the prose of the book that has been transferred to the dialogue of the movie. Turl never says Leverage out loud in the book. He's always thinking about it, but he never says it out loud. And if you didn't have him say Leverage, you would still understand his game in the movie. But they, for whatever reason, transpose a lot of lines of prose from the book and make people say them out loud. Another good example is, like, there's just a brief moment in the book where he mentions his new secretary, Churl, and in the prose it says, Turl liked Chur. She was pretty, too stupid to be a menace, got drunk with economical speed, and had other advantages. And it just moves on from there. That's it. Churl, she says like three words in the book. Women in this book are even more non-existent than they are in the movie. And it's, it kind of gives you a hint of like how Laffy Hubs looked at women because they are just not present at all. He has no idea how romance works because Chrissy barely talks. We never, we rarely ever see her interact with Johnny. The only time Johnny, like, thinks about Chrissy, is he says to himself, the loincloth that Chrissy wore that day did a good job of showing her legs and breasts.
0: Yeah, he allegedly had a very troubling, physically abusive relationship with his ex-wife, very controlling and whatnot. So it it tracks. All All Around Hubs has a long history of violence and misogyny. Uh, yep. Yep,
1: pretty much. Uh, so Turl he get he gets Johnny and takes him back, and Johnny is the only human at the cyclo mining site. And he covertly tries to train Johnny how to work mining equipment. And it takes weeks of going through these language discs, these learning discs. In the book, the learning machine is a little bit different. I think it's meant to be about the size of a of a personal computer from the 1990s, like you know monitor tower that sort of thing, something big like that. That he plunks on a table that he he puts in Johnny's cage. And he just, he shows him how it works, and Johnny realizes he can pull the lever down, and the thing will talk to him, or he can push the lever up, and it shoots things into his eyes, and so he starts doing that.
0: The rat learns how yes. to pull the lever. The, so okay. it's not taught to him by the force ghost of some sad, extinct alien race.
1: The other humans come into play when Turl decides, okay, Johnny, you know enough, now we're gonna go get other humans to mine this gold, and take some across the Atlantic to Scotland where (laughs) randomly goes to Scotland and there are like settlements of humans still over there who have kind of maintained a bit more civilization than Johnny's people have because it's pre-industrial revolution technology that they're working with over there but they are smarter over there there's a really weird bit where after Johnny arrives he's like kind of scanning the people who he could possibly take over and he's Johnny observed that the Scots had definitely been the dominant. They were clearly those who'd come over from Norway and from Ireland and England to pollute, but the Scottish bloodline had remained strongest. And I'm like, what the fuck? Is Johnny like Cornelius Hawthorne from Community? Ah, I see that from your brow you have the diluted blood of a Norwegian in you.
0: Like Swedish
1: dogs. Swedish? Are these your friends? <laughs> Minorities, Jewesses, the unseasonably tanned. Like that is really how it's coming off here. Like how much time the book spends saying how badass the Scots are.
0: It's kind yes, of odd. Those Highlanders.
1: Yeah, but Johnny recruits. They brought us calculus. Johnny recruits about a hundred of them, including some guys that he know could be lookalikes for him. They go over and then they begin mine the gold like they do in the movie and they leave some people behind. And this is where and Turl tells him, I'm going to keep an eye on you because there is also this recon drone that flies overhead once a day. They know the exact time it's going to do it. They know what it can see.
0: And at what canted angle they can see it. And
1: whatever candid angle they can see it at. He has lookalike stay behind while him and some other people go off. And at one point they go to they go to NORAD, which is also in Colorado, and they know they have to mine gold. And they actually say, I read about a thing called Fort Knox. Let's check that out. And they find out, no, Fort Knox is empty because the Cyclos raided it like the first day that they were on Earth because it's a thing full of gold. But the book has an equally stupid resolution for how they get the gold that they do. There are long sections of this book dedicated to the mining. It goes into great detail about how much time they spend on this mine site. and it's is it
0: like a Tolstoy no- novel with farming? It really but is. It's no- like so dull and
1: droll. I was like having to skim through a lot because I'm just like, why the fuck are we still talking about the load and the, the drift and the fucking the cliffside? Good lord. They do find uh, nuclear weapons uh, hidden in NORAD. It's like the only thing that lasted because it's metal parts. It's not any machinery that can decay. They find a room that's kind of like the war room from Dr. Strangelove with people collapsed over the table. They've all suffocated or died from uh, air poisoning because the first thing the cyclo did after a... (laughs) I kind of enjoyed this. The way that the cyclists find out about Earth is that a scout ship recovers, I think it's Voyager 2 the satellite that had the golden disc on it, whichever like mm-hmm. or pioneer at like has the golden disc on it. And it, there's a cycle historian that says, yeah, these humans, they were dumb enough to send out the most precious mineral in the world. And then also on it, give us instructions on where to find them. Who the hell does that? So that's why the cyclists show up. And the first thing they do is just send this gas drone that go, that just goes all around the planet with deadly gas and, and poisons everyone that it can. And then other cyclists show up and take out any remainders, any remaining humans. And the only humans left after that were the ones who were close enough to radioactive sites that the cyclists didn't want to visit. And by the time of that we get to like the present of the novel, they find out that there's only like 35,000 humans left on all of Earth. So much more in the book than in the movie. Human man is an endangered species. <laughs> you don't really get that in the movie. It seems like man is... They're not endangered. They're in servitude, but they're not, you know, going extinct or anything like that. Whatever. But eventually, the humans find a, a figure out how to trick Turl in showing them how the Cyclo planes work and how the Cyclo armored cars work. And then eventually, they stage a uh, attack on the day that they know Turl is going to send back to Cyclo the gold that they mined. He sends it back like in the form of coffins so that he knows they'll be buried. Eventually, he's going to bribe his way to get sent back to Cyclo, then he can dig up the gold and be a rich man. Instead, they hide nuclear weapons in the coffins, send that to Cyclo, and the interesting thing about the ending of the movie versus the ending of this section of the book is that we don't know what happened to Cyclo at the end of this section of the book. We just know that the bombs were on the teleport, they're sent off, and then they begin their attack on the Cyclo base, but we never find out what happened to planet Cyclo until like I think a few hundred pages after that point in the book. It's like towards the end of like the thousand page novel that we find out, yeah, Cyclo not only blew up, but it became a star. And that any other Cyclo planet that tried to teleport back to the home planet got contaminated with that planet's radiation and also blew up. So it's like because they sent these nukes to planet Cyclo, it started a chain reaction that killed off almost the entire Cyclo race.
0: A chain reaction, a, a cha- radioactive chain reaction. A
1: radioactive chain reaction. That's that's how it goes. And oddly, the attack on the Cyclo base proper, we don't really see it. Uh, it's not told from the from Johnny's point of view. What happens is they begin the attack on Cyclo, and Johnny realizes that Turl has who has who has been keeping Chrissy in you know a cage because she did come after Johnny after a year like she said she would. He's let them go and is going to hunt them down for sport. So Johnny has to race after Turl and stop her from doing that. And eventually does. And then the other Scots come up to him and say, Hey, yeah, we, we did it, man. We got it. And at the same time, a gas drone has been released from the base. That's now going to go and poison the rest of the humans, which is like Turl's backup plan for after he had snuffed the gold to get rid of, you know, the evidence being the rest of humanity. And Johnny has to go stop that. And, I've seen, I've heard from Roger Christian that if they had made the second movie, it would have started with Johnny trying to stop that gas drone. Hmm. So, yeah, that's the, the big, yeah, those are the main differences between uh, the, yeah, I would say book and movie. There's no Harrier jets. There's <laughs> not a, nothing ridiculous like that, but the movie, uh, the book is still full of just a lot of plot contrivances, a lot of ridiculous moments. Uh, And like I said, it's, as a tribute to pulp science fiction, it works, but I I wouldn't call it a fun book. I I did not have a good time reading this thing.
0: Yeah, I do hear that it just keeps going.
1: Yes, it it does. I stopped reading around, I think I read the halfway point in the book, which is like a little bit after where the movie ends. It's Mm -hmm. after Johnny has stopped the, the drone, but he's just in a state of depression because he doesn't know if the attack on Cyclo worked or if... They're gonna send more Cyclops to Planet Earth to kill him and everyone else left on the planet. And Turl is left alive; he's imprisoned, but he haunts Johnny all. Like whenever he comes to see him, like, "Oh, they're gonna come for you, Johnny! They're coming for you!" Actually, he just calls him animal. He actually never uh, he never calls him man animal, but he never calls him Johnny either. He just always calls him animal. But there are odd scenes in the book where Turl is like in a really good mood and like just picks up Johnny and is like, hey there, animal! Where do you wanna to go today? Let's fly around somewhere. I'm in a good mood. How's it going?
0: So I do remember that there is something in the book where I guess it's in the second half that we learn that the cyclists were once a peaceful mining race. That had been brainwashed, corrupted, <laughs> and turned into these sadistic minions of war by a different race of individuals that are called like the psychiatrists or something.
1: <laughs> it, uh, it it is as thinly veiled as what you are describing. Yeah, yes. uh, it does go. The book does go into detail, and I've only picked this up from like reading plot synopsis because I didn't get to this part of the book. But yeah, it's there. The the psychiatrists. <laughs> can't believe they're actually called that. Uh, the psychiatrists were like these other Cyclos, or a, a kind of cult of Cyclos, if you will, that thousands of years ago wanted to increase the Cyclos' production. And so from birth, Cyclos are implanted with some sort of device that one, makes them very sadistic, uh, and also two, uh, makes them enjoy work, and three, in an effort to protect their technology there is a fail-safe in the cyclo's brain that if an alien race asks them or forces them to explain cyclotechnology, the cyclo will instinctively either kill the person asking them the question, or if they can't kill them, they will then commit suicide.
0: So this is actually a really interesting segue into Scientology.
1: <laughs> All right, yes, because, you know, people who use mind control on their pawns Laffy Hubs was projecting a bit in this book, I think. Well,
0: this is the weird thing. So this is another one of those moments that, like the tongue-in-cheek poking fun at world mythology and the stories that people tell, without really a full understanding that they might actually also be a part of that cycle, or L. Ron Hubbard might actually be a part of that cycle, this is one of those dual statements in which L. Ron Hubbard initially very thinly veiled critique on psychiatry and what evil psychiatrists and therapists and psychologists will do to the human mind when they run amok with it and turn people into these brainwashed individuals. And yet, without any sort of ironic understanding of what the Church of Scientology would later become to be known for mm-hmm. themselves. Yeah. And so a little bit, we're, we're not going to get into the, the full, full history of Scientology because that's a, a whole other bag of worms and radioactive material. But yeah. initially, so L. Ron Hubbard did create this religion first he created dianetics which was a text and a philosophy that is very convoluted i'm not going to try to break it down it was one of those things that as you mentioned the apa the american psychology association just kind of like this makes no sense yeah I think I, we don't they, know what you're talking about man. i had
1: to say like this is not based on empirical evidence at all and we cannot support his findings
0: but it was a very flash fad and then it sort of went away as flash fads do and so alron hubbard repackaged some of the dianetic stuff some of his sci-fi stuff and was really setting out to sort of create this spirituality because he was very open at the time that religion was where the money was mm-hmm. and Yet he also seemed to legitimately possibly believe in some of the things he was saying. So I'm not saying he was just in it for the money, but the money was also a huge motivator. Yeah. He initially set up these fleets. So he got a hold of a bunch of old boats, basically sort of Navy vessels that housed what was initially called the Sea Org, the Sea Organization mm-hmm. of followers of L. Ron Hubbard that would mostly primarily be on the the sea and would dock and port at different places and sort of try to spread the gospel of their spirituality. And it got to the point where a lot of ports were banning Sea Org from docking and whatnot. He got into some tax evasion issues. And so at some point went back to the U S and snuck into port there and remained in hiding for a good majority of the rest of his life to evade IRS.
1: For what I understand, then, it was while he was in hiding, he wrote this book.
0: Yeah, I think he did write this one while in his sort of seclusion. But Scientology grew while he was in the U.S. There are different sort of things that came out about Scientology at the time that Hubbard was still in charge of it. But it's really with the current overseer of the church, David Miscavige, where a lot of the the darker accusations about Scientology have sort of mm-hmm. slowly trickled out and then escalated very quickly as the internet became a more <laughs> accessible medium mm-hmm. to sort of share information. But David Miscavige has been in multiple lawsuits from the time that he started his reign of the church in around 1981 as I think when he kind of took formal control after Hubbard's death. There are accusations about forced separation from family members, coercive fundraising tactics and techniques, harassment, stalking, humiliation, blackmail, physical abuse, and the list kind of goes on where a lot of former church members later come out about the abuse and the narrative that's sort of told throughout these court documents and through sort of survivors of the church online and throughout documentaries. There's this one documentary that I watched in preparation for this, Going Clear, Scientology in the Prison of Belief, which was a 2015 documentary. It's on HBO right now that interviews a lot of former church members. And they all have very similar things to say in that when they went into auditing sessions initially, they shared a lot of their secrets, a lot of their personal information. Mm -hmm. And that when Miscavige took control of the church... Later, if they wanted to exit for some reason, or they wanted to speak out for some reason, they had all of these taped audio sessions of their deepest and darkest secrets that the church then threatened to leverage over them leverage, and blackmail them. Say. Leverage, I say, leverage. yes. Leverage came up as a, a term quite often in this Going Clear documentary, as well as a lot of testimonies, and Miscavige himself uses the term leverage a lot, and... In Hubbard's writings, there are some fundamental stuff where he talks about how if somebody is to speak out against the church, defense is not a great tactic. You want to go on the offense. You want to be proactive about that shit. And I don't know to what extent he detailed how one should be proactive, but it seemed like blackmail and coercion is sort of almost built into the rhetoric of the offensive strategies of of the church mm. and so this game of psychological warfare also stories about psychological warfare a couple of the the high guys at one point that were kind of miscavages right hand left hand men that themselves were often put on stalking and harassment duty of former members they were quite open about this they're like yeah i committed some crimes in the, in the name of this man now i feel kind of bad about it now it's happening to me, and I feel like it's kind of karma, you know, and retribution. oops daisy that they would have these practices that were basically, like, Miscavige throwing them into these—I think they called it the hole or something. They were these rehabilitation zones if they had angered or threatened or displeased the church in some way. And they would just be these fucking-with-your-mind games trying to sort of, yeah, torture technique 101, break down people and shame them for possibly displeasing the the organization in some way. And there was a lot of physical abuse that went on here. There's a lot of humiliation, a lot of verbal abuse. And so watching this movie, I watched the Going Clear documentary first. Because I wanted to learn a lot about Scientology as much as I could, mm-hmm. also some of their sort of base premises. Because there were allegations when Battlefield Earth came out that this was some sort of Scientology propaganda piece. And a lot of the criticism was, well, there's subliminal messaging about Scientology in this. And it's going to make the youth watch this and pick up those subliminal messages and want to go join Sea Org. right? They're going to go join the church. We're we're creating a, a mini little uprising of future Scientologists from this film. I don't see a very strong case for that in this movie, actually. A lot of the base sort of mythos that Scientology is based on doesn't really make it into this movie. Like no. Zeno's not really present in this movie. This is a different sci-fi story. Yeah. Really. There's some paranoia about psychiatry, but that's more in the novel, right? Yep. Because we don't actually get the psychiatrist as the character. We just get this overbearing cyclist population. And, after watching the Going Clear stuff and all these testaments from the people in the church, including one individual who had gotten out that initially when they were in, had been John Travolta's initial spiritual advisor in the church. So it was a woman who, on um, their pictures of Travolta at her wedding and stuff. Oh. That they were good <laughs> friends, and she had been a part of the initial Sea Org stuff and yeah, had been put on as his kind of guidance mentor or whatever. And then she ran into some problems with the church to the point where they put her through the rehabilitation camps. They kind of took away her kid for a little while and apparently had a, a place where all the kids were kept because separation from the, the mother and child was a very popular philosophy because the kids should be sort of raised in the church without influence. I don't know. There's this whole thing. I'm not going to get into it because I don't remember the details and I don't want to necessarily misspeak. But she realized that she needed to get out after they had prohibited her from talking with or seeing Travolta for a little while. And she eventually had a conversation with him where some of this came out about what was happening to her. And he was the one who gave her the strength to leave the church to sort of, she had one friend that wasn't related to Scientology that she called to come pick her up, pretending she was taking her to a doctor's appointment with her kid. And then they locked the doors and they drove away really fast. Mm she's like, well, Travolta sort of pointed out to me, why are you letting yourself be treated this way, right? This is unacceptable. And she was very surprised afterwards that Travolta himself did not exit the church at all, that he seemed like he was going to too. And then he just stayed right on going in this sort of shiny, happy people veneer. And she's like, he knows some of the stuff that, you know, is going on there. He was the one who gave me the strength to leave. And so that's what started some of these speculations that perhaps what ended up happening to a lot of people also happened to Travolta, and that they have some sort of secret or secrets on him, and they're holding it as leverage over him in the church so that he cannot exit. I don't know what this would be, but and I, I don't really want to speculate because I don't want to spread more rumors about this guy because this is already <laughs> kind of a, a speculative about um allegation but going into watching this film with that in mind that Travolta might indeed be trapped by the church in an unending cycle of endless options for renewal <laughs> <laughs> because
1: he uh, had been okay. initially
0: right he'd been initially brought in because he was a rising star in the 80s yeah. the church really liked their celebrity clients he was mm-hmm. given a lot of anything that he needed and they liked him as a spokesperson and he was that happy spokesperson for a while. And there is potential evidence that that might have changed at some point. And yet they have leverage over him that keeps him there maintaining his position. And that scene is really haunting in that regard when you watch those interactions and the type of language that they use in that scene is this is coming straight from the head office. Right. That's a it's a line there. Mm. The head office is. This is coming straight from the head office is a lot of the language that they use in the legal documents, court cases about the church. There is a head office. It seemed weird to me that this planet of cyclists would have organizational terms like the head office, the home office, at the discretion, endless options for contract renewal. Like There were a lot of legal... Sort of evasive terminology Mm. That actually pops up a lot In conjunction with the church And this scene just very much Read to me in this moment As perhaps a passive-aggressive statement Of John Travolta's position Within Scientology And that's sort of What I continue to take away As the Cyclos Continue to be more and more Obsessed with Offensive action and the importance of having leverage in maintaining power and control, which is, a, just, as far as I understand it, a central doctrine of not necessarily Scientology as a spirituality, but from David
1: Miscavige, Miscavige. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that seems to be his, his heightened MO, that leverage is the most important thing a person can have in maintaining control, that this becomes a very interestingly critical, dark commentary on the current state of the executive branch of the organization. And so that to me when I watched this is like that was my takeaway about Scientology is that they in fact were the cyclos in this movie. Uh, So shit gets dark and it gets interesting in that regard. So That's pretty
1: nice. I like that theory. I love that uh I love that 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 puts that scene in a very much different light and I love it actually. Uh, though talking about, yeah, Scientology's hold on John Travolta, this kind of bring me, uh, come around to a few things I wanted to mention about how this movie came to be. Because it's no secret that this was uh, John Travolta's pet project for years and years and years. Apparently he wanted to get this thing going as soon as the book came out because L. Ron Hubbard gave him an autographed copy of the book and supposedly said to him, yeah. I hope this becomes a movie, and I hope that you play Johnny. The way that Johnny is described in this book, John Travolta would have been, even young John Travolta, would have been horrible casting. The way that, that Johnny good boy Tyler is portrayed in the book, young Dolph Lundgren would have been a better casting choice <laughs> uh, than John Travolta. That's neither here nor there. Uh, he pushed for many years to get this thing going, but studios would not touch it, even when he was young John Travolta was popular because of the association with Scientology. They just didn't want to touch it. Further and further into the late 80s, early 90s, John Travolta couldn't get anything made because he was a falling star. But then after Pulp Fiction came out and he was a lot more popular, people were like, oh, okay, we'll we'll think about this. We'll we'll consider this. And in the mid 90s, he was getting closer and closer to getting it made. He was just shopping around for writers. This is around the same time that a young writer by the name of J.D. Shapiro shows up and is hanging out at the Celebrity Center. And these are stories that Shapiro uh, told in a famous op-ed that he sent to the New York Post. He tells a story of how it was the mid-90s, uh, he had some popularity in Hollywood because he had co-written Robin Hood Men in Tights, which was the last funny film that Mel Brooks made. Uh, Dracula Dead and Loving It does not count. But he had heard that the Celebrity Center, which was, like, where the Scientologists hung out, was a good place to meet women. He went in there. Sure. Yeah, go figure. Uh, he, like, literally says, my dick was really doing all the thinking for me at the time. What are you going to do? He calls him like He calls his dick Willie. He's like, Willie was telling me to go over here.
0: Well, I just yeah. learned why he might have trouble meeting women.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, he comes off as, like, he's a guy with a thick Brooklyn accent who really thinks highly of his abilities as a writer and as a comedian. And as far as I could tell, his his abilities as a writer, they're fine. His abilities as a comedian may may leave a little bit to be desired. (laughs) But he says that while he was, after he left there, he had, while he was around, had chatted up some other people. They said like, well, what do you do? I'm a writer. And eventually he gets a call from John Travolta's people, inviting him out to dinner. And he was like, okay, kind of weird. They go in, and John says, well, I'm uh, I'm really wanting to get this, uh, a movie made of this book, and I think it would be really great if you like it. I really like your stuff. Shapiro says, well, okay, cool, I'll read the book then. And Travolta, apparently, his response was, well, you don't need to read the book. We'll just give you an outline. And Shapiro's like, no, I'll go ahead and I'll read the book. He reads the book. He's like, oh, okay, I can do something with this. Pitches it to the studio that was interested at the time as... Planet of the Apes meets Braveheart. And that makes total sense. And so they give him the go-ahead. He puts in a draft. And apparently it's after seeing this draft that Travolta describes it as the Schindler's List of Science Fiction. Because Shapiro says he wrote something that was very dark and very gritty. It was basically that. It was Planet of the Apes meets Braveheart. So like the gritty nature of both of those movies with some sci-fi elements. He says, okay, then I get a round of notes. That's normal. Some of the notes... They make sense. They're reasonable. I change those. Other notes, they don't make any sense. I ignore those. Turn in a second draft. Then a new random notes come in. These are not from the studio. I find out these are from, quote-unquote, John's camp. These are notes that are terrible. They would have him remove scenes that were vital to it, add scenes and characters that make no sense, and basically destroy any cohesion to the story could have. He refused to do any of that, and he was fired. So... He's like, fuck it, got fired, but whatever, I got paid, I'm out. Travolta's uh, production company, him and his producers bring in another writer, Corey Mandel. And looking at Corey Mandel's IMDb, it's a little weird because he only has three credits on IMDb. But I looked into him, and it turns out Corey Mandel, he's been like working for years in Hollywood professionally as a guy who polishes scripts. So comes in, takes a look at a script, says like, eh, change this, change that, this line's better, this line's better, that sort of thing. And he's pretty good at it. He got, like, a really big start right out of film school because apparently Ridley Scott really liked a a script he had written while still in film school. So he's like, yeah, I'm hot out of film school. And there are, like, stories on the front page of Variety saying that Ridley Scott likes a script that I wrote. Badass! Uh, The script was Metrop, was a thinking called Metropolis, which has very clear inspirations from Blade Runner, but also William Gibson and Neil Stevenson, uh, you know, cyberpunk uh, you know, stuff, And had Ridley Scott made the thing, it definitely would have been a spiritual sequel to Blade Runner, and it's a shame it didn't happen, but that's Hollywood for you. He gets told about a meeting with John Travolta, and before the meeting starts, or before he goes to the meeting, his agent tells him, Okay, look, John is going to offer you money. Do not take it. Do not take this job. Go in there, have the meeting, be nice to him, get your name out there, but do not take this job. He says, okay, cool, no problem. Goes to the meeting and he says, John and, like, ten other people at dinner with him are all so nice, they're so charming. Which Travolta does strike me as a very charming guy, if rather, like I said, unaware of many things. But he does seem like I could see how he could charm your pants off, literally, sometimes. That's, yes. I'm gonna dwell on that for a little bit. Nice. Anyway. Are tra-
0: you imagining something? Saturday night fever John Travolta or like fanatic John Travolta? Which one gets your heart beating faster? Yes. All right. Moving on. <laughs> I can't argue against that. They they both work. They All
1: both right. do kind of kind of work there, yeah. It's actually it's the fanatic John Travolta, but he's in our Saturday night fever outfit.
0: Oh, yeah. Now there's an image.
1: Yeah. I'm not <laughs> gonna dwell on that image. <laughs> <I am. laughs>
0: but I'm a masochist that way, so let's let's keep going.
1: As am I, because I talked to you. Corey Mandel takes the job against the wishes of his agent and puts in the script. This script is available online. It's a script dated to October of 1998. That script, much like the book... Actually, no, not like the book. The dumbest things in the movie are not in the script, and they took things out of the script that made much more sense, or that explained a lot of things. The biggest one for me that gave a lot more explanation, the character in the movie who takes the bomb... When I was watching this the first time, I'm like, why is this guy given so much attention? Why does he have such a weird puppy dog who wants to be brave look about him the entire time? Like, it seems like it should be really dramatic that he's the one to take the bomb, but he's just another guy. What does it matter? Turns out in the original script, Mikey had a twin brother, Sammy, who we see a lot more in the movie. Uh, at one point, Mikey stabs Turl in, like, that fight that Johnny and the other humans have with him in his office, Later on, to make an example of humans that try to hurt him, Turl says, which one of you tried to stab me? And before Mikey can say it, Sammy, his twin brother, raises his hand like, it it, it was me. I did it. I did it. Turl takes him, throws him on a teleportation platform, and sends him to Cyclo without any oxygen or any protective gear, and shows all the humans the video of Sammy asphyxiating and his body being crushed to pulp due to the heavy gravity on Cyclo. So Mikey is fucked up by this.
0: It seems like it would be more effective to just push him out into the changed atmosphere right where they are so they can see it in person.
1: Yeah, a little bit, but you get the added benefit of the cycloplanet gravity crushing him. Like it's, like the script describes like his spine snapping and his skull caving open because like his body is being pushed down by the intense gravity of the home planet.
0: And I guess if we're getting it in cyclocam, we would be able to see it at the proper canted angle. Exactly.
1: Yeah, it is like a little slanted. They make a comment of that in the script. They're like, why are they filming this at a canted angle? So I can see why they removed that one. Cyclovision. Yeah, cyclovision. (laughs) Exactly. So this messes with Mikey in a big, bad way. And that's why he is so adamant about volunteering to take the bomb back. And he says, I want to go there and be with Sammy. And John says, Mike, he's dead. You can't be with him. He's like, I'll be with him. I'm going to do this. John's like, respect, man. Let's do this thing. And there's a much cooler moment where Mikey gets the planet like we see in the movie, but he has a little bit more time where he begins to fall down and the other cyclers are laughing at him. And he looks at them and just says, I'm about to die. But so are you. Click. Boom. So he gets like kind of a more badass send off uh, in the original script. And there are other bits like that. There are just plots that make a little bit more sense Mm -hmm. than they do in the movie, as you can imagine. And stuff that's added in, like the Harrier jets, that are just baffling to think who decided this should be in the movie? That's just really weird.
0: Yeah, but if you include that more human story of loss and grief, you wouldn't have time. Benji to explore the tasty rat treat subplot. <laughs> so choices had to be made. Choices. Sacrifices had to be sacrificed.
1: Oh, oh my. Yes. Um. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to cover was a little bit of the people who made this movie. When I looked into the people behind this movie, it actually kind of became baffling because everyone in this who worked in this movie has a solid pedigree and thankfully, their careers didn't suffer too much.
0: Except for poor Barry Pepper.
1: Barry Pepper, yeah, which is sad because uh, I remember seeing him in The 25th Hour, which was a Spike Lee film made after this, uh, made in 2002, and he's great in that. And it really is a shame that he didn't have much of a career after this movie.
0: So leading up to this movie, why it seems like it sticks out even more, is this guy was in three big movies back to back. He's in Saving Private Ryan. Right on. And then Enemy of the State and then The Green Mile. And it looks like Barry Pepper's career is really about to just take off Mm -hmm. because he's good in these three movies. Not that he's not good in Battlefield Earth for what he's been given and doing, but he also, you know, he's Johnny Goodboy Tyler in Battlefield Earth. And so, yeah, you're like Saving Private Ryan, Enemy of the State, The Green Mile battlefield earth Mm -hmm. and then after that he is in some stuff but it looked like that was going to be you know his build-up golden age moment
1: yeah i I will like his performance in the movie actually is a little baffling because both in the book and the script that you can find online johnny is well i would say in the book he has even less personality than he does in the movie but in the script he's a passionate guy but he does a lot that kind of too cool for school attitude uh, towards, it Like, in that scene where he fights the guy in the cage for the food, uh, he doesn't overpower him. He outsmarts the guy, like, takes away his, his air tubes because there's no oxygen in their cages, so they have to have the, the breathing tubes in all the time, overpowers him that way, and then just simply states, you know what? I think we're all going to eat at the same time. As opposed to the, this additional Braveheart-esque speech where he's like, we have enough problems if without us, blah, 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 blah. And I don't, the script, the thing that ruins that scene for me in the movie is like the way he's holding the goop. Just this goop <laughs> is constantly squishing in his hand. And anytime someone goes to grab it, it's like, squish, squish, like it robs the scene of any dramatic tension. Yeah, that
0: girl is like, yeah, I've been persuaded by this speech. And she just goes and yeah. grabs the grit from his hand. and just starts. None of that on in it. the
1: speech. So I would, I don't understand why Barry Pepper gave the performance that he did. I really do get the feeling like they were so rushed for time, they really weren't sure what to do or when like the dramatic moments were be. so he was just playing it at 11 the entire time. When they're flying across the country, there's a line that in the script, it should just read as, Keep an eye out for an ocean. If you see one, we've gone too far. That's how the line should read. But Barry Pepper in the film says, Keep an eye out for an ocean if you've seen one. We've gone too far. Like the, the He just reads it like the wrong way, and I think if they had more time, the director could have said, Oh, 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 Barry, uh, that that was a bit off there. Uh, let's just take that back and and say the line a little bit differently. Uh, emphasis on, on this syllable right here.
0: I feel like somebody probably just sent him a VHS copy of Kroll with, like, a post-it on it that said, <laughs> Watch this, this, do this. Yeah,
1: make that happen. Which, okay, I mentioned, like, the director. So I'll, I'll just chat briefly about the director, Roger Christian. Roger Christian is alternate universe Ridley Scott. He kind of comes from the same background has the same sensibility about movies, is like, in all of his interviews, he's like this completely nice English gentleman, like, uh, yes, I'm, I'm Roger Christian, I'm the director of such films as uh, Nosodramas, The Heading, and Underworld. And what-
0: motherfucking masterminds.
1: And mess. yeah. Uh, and when I say Underworld, I don't mean that Underworld. I mean a movie from 1996 starring Dennis Leary that I really want to see because I fucking love this tagline. It says... After spending seven years behind bars, Johnny Crown, Dennis Leary, is back in the street with lots of cash, a psychotherapy degree, and a burning desire to find and punish gangsters who had killed his father. One of the people involved is Frank Gavillin, who unwillingly follows Johnny in his demonical and ultra-violent crusade.
0: What is- are some words in that that were actual words.
1: <laughs> what is this movie? My God! I couldn't find the commentary track to this film because you have to have a physical copy and physical copies of this movie are very hard to get. Uh, But I I could get snippets of his commentary online and on YouTube. And his attitude more or less just seems to be, look, this is what I was going for. People didn't like it. And that's okay for them to not like it. I'm happy with what I did, which is the attitude to take. Like he understands, you know, you didn't like it. That's cool. You know what? You can li- you can not like a movie.
0: Did have Masterminds going he for in master- yeah. 1997 walking, masterpiece. Walking
1: around with that big Masterminds energy.
0: Vincent Kartheiser and Patrick Stewart in a show off where <laughs> Patrick Stewart comes and takes over an elite school of school children and holds them ransom and Vincent Kartheiser at like 17 years old comes in and saves the day.
1: Oh god.
0: It's amazing. It's
1: so amazing. On the the other guy in the commentary track with Roger Christian for the movie is Patrick Tetopoulos. And earlier you mentioned like this movie had some dark city vibes. That makes sense because the production designer for this movie was also the production designer for Dark City.
0: Yeah. So, he was. Patrick Tetopoulos is a creature designer in in Hollywood that I'm very weirdly familiar with cuz he did the creature designs on a lot of films.
1: Yeah, no. His his resume Fucking off the charts. Now, here's a fun fact. Can you tell me what this movie has in common with the film Swim Fan?
0: What?
1: (laughs) Same cinematographer. Really? Giles Nukkins was the cinematographer.
0: Giles swim fan. Apparently, Holy he shit. specializes
1: in underwater cinematography. He's multiple films of his have like been underwater focused or been, like he's apparently just known for like he can he can get really good lighting underwater. He understands the physics of lighting water. It's bizarre. There aren't many interviews with him about this movie. The only thing he's ever said about it is that the lighting budget was very low. He had about half the lights he would have wanted to the film, which I think really does explain why the scenes that work the best are the ones with very minimal, high-contrast lighting. Mm-hmm. The guy can work with shadows. He's doing really good, and that's because he didn't have many lights. So there you go. Interesting. Uh, yeah, and the other bizarre thing, I'll just save it here, like the other bizarre thing about the, the crew of this movie, the composer Elia, his last name is spelt C-M-I-R-A-L. Uh, so I'm just going to call him Simaril. Elias yeah. Simmeril, the movie he composed the music for, he composed the music for Battlefield Earth, and then right after that, he composed the music to Bones.
0: The TV show? Or Snoop the Snoop Dogg Dog horror yeah. film?
1: Yeah, that. Fuck yeah. How much of a 180 is that to go from Battlefield Earth to the Snoop Dogg Ghost Mafia movie? My god.
0: Actually so, like, thinking that if I was to dwell on it, I could probably find a lot of points of comparison. <laughs> I'm not going to right now, but that's the the initial thesis.
1: Uh, but yes, and really looking at that crew, I'm like, my god, man, these are some awesome people. What was going on here? And I would say that if you had to find a villain of the whole story that caused Battlefield Earth to be the movie that it was, it would be the producer Ilya, I think Ilie Samaha was the, he's one of two credit producers for this film. The other credit producer, I believe is named Jonathan Drake, and he was like a longtime producing partner with, with Travolta. Ilya Samaha was the guy who ran franchise pictures and had a uh, reputation. Yes. yes. And he had a reputation for finding out about pet projects that celebrities had and getting those made, because then they're chomping at the bits, like, oh, yeah, let's do that. He made so many crap movies because of this the most successful of the movies that franchise pictures did was the whole nine yards, the, the Bruce Willis, Matthew Perry, com- uh, kind of dark comedy, which is it's a great dark comedy. If you've ever seen it, it's like really that funny. was
0: actually packaged with this one, right? Uh, In order to sell battlefield earth.
1: Yes. That. And I think another movie was packaged to German. And Wesley
0: Snipes. Film. Yes.
1: The uh, art of war with Wesley yeah. Snipes. And he would package films together to get investors on that, but would also grossly inflate the budgets. And if you look at any like media about this film prior to it coming out, it always describes the movie as $80 million or $100 million movie. Like $75. 75000000 million. Number, yeah. yeah, exactly. That's what he said the movie was going to cost. Actual cost of the movie, Roger Christian has like admitted in interviews that when he was brought on, he was told that this was a $100 million movie that only had $20 million to work with.
0: Yeah, so apparently the final budget, at least by the court ruling, was that $42 million was legit. Yeah. Whether that was or not, I don't know, but $42 million was legit, so they had actually embezzled $31 million mm-hmm. from this film.
1: And I'm not saying that this movie would have been completely solved by that extra $31 million, but they definitely could have ironed out a few kinks, I think. They obviously couldn't do, with the, the cyclos being really big and the humans being a lot shorter than the cyclos, They no way would they ever had time to do something like that. The Lord of the Rings did with forced perspective photography or a lot of blue screen, green screen action, or anything like that. The quick solution was put the actors on stilts. Practically, like it's incredibly obvious when you see the actors in cyclo costumes walking around, like with these gigantic boots on. Like you can kind of see them holding their arms out for balance as they're walking around. It's but
0: it's kind of cool. It kind of gives the cyclos their own physiology.
1: But that was like one of, the, one of the more lampoon things about this film. I mean, there are many other things, but that was definitely one of them. And if they were wanting to come off with a product that had a bit more visual prestige to it, yeah, that, that $31 million probably could have helped with that. Or given, you know, the cinematographer a little bit more lighting to work with. Who knows? Uh, I mean, overall, like I said earlier, I don't think that there's anything inherently wrong with the choices made in production design and cinematography, really. Like, people make fun of the the Dutch angles in the film, but you know what? That's your style. You go for it and it gives it a very unique look and that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But if you are so limited in what you can do because of a falsified production budget, then no one wins in that case. Uh, Certainly not Elise Hemma because he lost that court case and had to pay back those German investors. I think a hundred million dollars or something like the court ruled that he ended up owing that company.
0: The amount of money that franchise pictures managed to embezzle well, I guess they didn't manage it in the end, but yeah. it was humoristically impressive.
1: <laughs> uh, Yeah, I'll give them that.
0: They're like, I'm going to inflate this budget 48%. Yeah. That's a huge cut to try to skim off something. Oh,
1: for sure. A little ways back, there was a documentary about the Cannon Group. I don't know if you ever saw there or not, but about that production company from the 1980s that made a lot of just ridiculous, cheesy 80s action films. And it you know, talked about the founder, golden and Globus, I talked about them and how crazy they were, how much they fucked with the movies that like were in their company. I really think a similar documentary could probably be made about Franchise Pictures, because there are so many ridiculous stories mm-hmm. about this company that I think you could easily get a similar documentary uh, about them as you did for the Canon group.
0: Yes, yeah, so that's, that's the next thing we need. Yep. Somebody out there. Franchise Pictures documentary. All right. So speaking of all these people, top five.
1: Top five, my number five is Turl as played by John Travolta. All right. Because what was the first thing I did when we started this? I did that stupid line because I know everyone's thinking about that line. That's all I want remember from this movie is the ridiculous. Well, you were learning how to spell your name. I was being trained to conquer galaxies. That performance is so off the rails, so absurd. You just gotta, like, give him a slow clap. Wow. That, the Victorian dropping his pants during his speech. Like, whoa. I don't know why you did that, but the the fucking nards you have to have to do something that ridiculous. Props, man.
0: He has a very distinct style yes. throughout this film. Yes. Great. All right, my number five, coincidentally enough, was Patrick Totopoulos. Um, All right. So... I really liked the creature design of the cyclos in this. I liked the weird stilts. I liked the weird nose jewelry. (laughs) I liked that they were even carrying the Dutch angles through to their eyebrows. The entire thing was just odd, and there's just so much synthetic hair going on. There's a lot of latex. Yeah, I liked this race of aliens. He's also the costume designer on this film, where he's usually just the creature effects person, and he's not usually a costume designer. So yeah, he he brought it for me on this one. Not mm-hmm. so much with the man cave or the mall cave dwellers, yeah. but the cyclists. I, I liked what was happening yeah. there. My number four.
1: My number four is I'll, I gotta give it to the cinematographer uh, on this thing, Kelsey. Yeah. Because he's done good work elsewhere, and I kind of respected what a visually distinctive style he came up with uh, in this movie, given the limitations that he obviously had in place with regards to budgets, budget and the lighting that he could use. I think if you like remove the human scenes and you just like give us all those blue lit scenes in the cyclo base, this could be like a really interesting alien film in its own right. Given like those cool blue interior, like blues and greens and purples, like it's a really cool, I like it as a color pal. Like it just works for me. So respect to him for coming up with a very visually distinctive style despite the obvious budgetary limitations that he had to work with.
0: Okay, I hate you. Number <laughs> oh, God. four, written down. Giles Nuckins, the cinematographer. God
1: damn it! I hate what those. <laughs> Pretty happens. much
0: for the same reasons. I was <laughs> Stockholm syndrome into those Dutch angles.
1: I don't even notice it after a while, really. Everything's kind of like, whoa, a little tilty there. Okay,
0: nice. I think that was the first thing. One of the first things I texted you while I was watching this movie. Yeah. Where I was like, wow, they're just. Dutch Angles everywhere, everywhere. I'm like, and, buckle up. Well, you, you said something along the lines of, well, you know, X, Y, and Z. There are, there are definitely better ways to do that. I'm like, no, no, there weren't. This was the only <laughs> that's way. Right,
1: yeah, yeah, And you're
0: like, that's a strange hill to die on. I'm like, I don't care. I, I'm, I'm going to die on it. I'm going to die on this. Slanted ox- hill. Oxygenated, yes, yeah, cyclist exterior radiated landscape. I don't know. So cyclovision for it. Who's your number
1: three? Oh, number three is Patrick Tatopoulos.
0: All right. Again, <laughs> I, fuck
1: you. I, <laughs> uh, because, like I said, and as unfortunately you also said of like minds here, I really like uh, everything he did with the look of the Cyclos. This was something that was lampooned a lot. Everyone kept calling them like the, uh, the Rastafarian aliens or something like that because some of them kind of have dreads. That's not a bad thing in and of itself. Uh, it's a distinct look. I haven't seen... These kind of aliens in any other movie. I think no matter it didn't really matter what he did in this, like people still would have made fun of the look of the aliens. That's just how it goes in science fiction. Again, I imagine that the costuming budget probably wasn't very high for this movie either. So, what are you going to do? He worked with what he had, and I think he came up with some really cool stuff. And thankfully, he himself went on to work on the, the design for the Underworld movies, and I think directed some of the later ones as well.
0: Yeah, he directed one of them. Okay. Okay. Number three, I had Barry Pepper question mark. (laughs) Because I didn't really have a number three. I feel like number three is too high for Mm -hmm. both Barry Pepper and Forrest Whitaker's performance. Because I know Forrest Whitaker could have done better. But he also didn't need to do better. So it was kind of one of those things where I'm like, ah, maybe I put Forrest Whitaker there. Maybe I put Barry Pepper there. Because same thing with Barry Pepper, where he was going a little bit overboard in some places, but he also wasn't going overboard enough in other places. So he his character felt very flat. And yet he was trying in places. I don't know. Yeah, so number three is just kind of a question mark. Yeah. But I'll throw Barry Pepper in there for okay. the requiem of his career.
1: So, bury a little salt. It's okay. Number two uh, for me is Corey Mandel, who is one of the credited writers for this film. Mostly just because in interviews, he comes off as a very self-aware guy, very kind, and he seems to be doing pretty good these days. He actually runs a scriptwriting course, which when you hear about, you're like, the guy who wrote Battlefield Earth teaches screenwriting. <laughs> which at first seemed odd to me, but then I realized, okay, I think most people who are at screenwriting classes in L.A., they know what three-act structure is. They know motivations and characters and all that. What they don't really know is how shitty can this business get, and who knows more about how shitty the business can get than the guy who wrote Battlefield Earth. He's seen it firsthand, and a lot of his uh, stuff that you see online... Is really him like saying, like, okay, this is what's going to get your script rejected. This is what's going to turn off a producer. This is what you don't want to say in a meeting, you know, that sort of thing. Like, give them a really good idea of how to handle, Mm -hmm. you know, the important meetings that can make or break a career. And so props to him for that. He says he hasn't like worked on anything, a script writing wise, since 2004 and just dedicates himself to teaching. And he's a really nice guy. There's an interview with him. Where, one, he says, yeah, I was given J.D. Shapiro's script. I was told, read it, but don't use a single word of it. Okay, fine. He writes his own script. And he was asked, how much of your script is in the final movie? And he says, I'd like to say it's less than 1%, but that wouldn't be (laughs) honest. And, like, okay, Hollywood screenwriter who's actually wanting to give a go at honesty. Rare breed. Good for you, sir. So, just, he seems like a good guy who, who got a really raw deal, so I, I kind of want to apply on the list.
0: Fair enough. Number two, Carlo. Yeah, okay. And all his little monkey sounds. <laughs> so... <laughs> he starts all of his sentences with these strange ape sounds, and then breaks into normal speech. Piece of cake. But Piece of cake, piece of cake, piece of cake. By God, does he bring the smoldering, piercing eyes throughout the entire run.
1: But what and is cake to this man? How does he know what a piece of cake is?
0: He is a piece of cake. I don't know. He's he's delicious. He's scrumptious. He belongs with Johnny B. Greener.
1: I can't deny his eyes. That's true. Damn. Yeah,
0: he's he just kind of Oof. seems to be having fun in this role. And so Does I work. I cared the most about his character for some reason. Say. So
1: I dig it. I dig it. My number 1, and I think you might disagree with me on this, is Forrest Whitaker. All right. Forrest Whitaker it was fascinating to watch in this film. I actually, like, one of the earliest memories I have about this movie is like, when I saw the trailer. The trailers for Ghost Dog Way of the Samurai were also at the same time. And I'm like, is that the guy from Ghost Dog in this movie? Whoa! Weird! He has a bunch of stuff on his face, but yeah, that's Ghost Dog.
0: How odd! The time when yeah. he was remembered for Ghost Dog. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> the late 90s were a strange time. What, what are you gonna do? But... The way that he handles this movie is fascinating to me. Like, he plays it, I think, as best it could be played. I mean, I was almost like alchemy to me, watching this guy try to... Well, not try, he was really succeeding to me in making something good out of an oddly written character, uh, like Kerr. Like, he plays it just the right amount of humor, not really going over the top. To me, he was the best actor in this movie, and the best best performance to watch but in a way that legitimately served the story. Forrest Whitaker is having a real go, but in this film, he's just hitting it all at the right levels, and maybe he just... He comes off really well to me. A lot of his scenes are with John Travolta, who is acting completely crazy in a way that is hilarious, but I won't really say lends this movie or story any air of legitimacy. But Forrest Whitaker, yeah, he he's there.
0: So my number one... Yeah. Also... Is for the best performance that hits all the right notes and is the most fun and fascinating to watch. The bartender, and that is John Travolta.
1: Although no, just John, okay, sorry.
0: sorry. Yeah, uh, I no, thought you were
1: referring to our no. friendly bartender.
0: Yeah, our friendly bartender probably should have taken number three, but <laughs> tell John me, Travolta. Tell in us this. about.
1: Tell us about John Travolta. How does he just? How does John Travolta in this movie make you feel?
0: He just delights me to the depths of my soul. Not to the extent that Nick Cage does in a performance by any means, but you can tell that he's trying for that energy mm-hmm. a little bit. That he is just letting a little bit of his id go free, where he's embracing the crazy. Probably
1: picked that up from Nicolas Cage after Face Off.
0: Yeah, there we go. He's he's taking the, the Nick Cage school of directing. He's no master at it, but... <laughs> It is the most fun thing other than the cinematography to watch in this film because his maniacal laughter that kind of happens throughout it, his strange inflection patterns that he uses. Mm-hmm. I don't know. He is kind of an an alien psychology in that way. Does the Home but...
1: Office not know that I was the top of my academy?
0: Yeah, I just... There's something about it that makes this infinitely more interesting than if it was just completely played straight if this film was just completely filmed with straight angles there's something about just the off-kilterness of the camera and John Travolta's face and the expressions and emotions that's coming from him that does Yeah, it feels a little odd. I don't think there's anything else that's quite made me feel the way that his performance in this makes me feel, so...
1: Yeah, I would say... I I would definitely say that if I, like, had godlike powers, it could change things about this movie. There are many things I would change to accentuate its craziness, but I would not change a word that John Travolta has or anything about his performance, because it does work. I think what this movie needed more was a more consistent straight man to how crazy he is, and I feel like that should have been Johnny who, as he's written in the book and the script, and the original script, he is more the straight man. He is more of a calm, collected guy who, like, has a cold determination to overthrow the Cyclos. But the way that the movie is cut together and what Barry Pepper is doing, we don't get that. It's just Barry Pepper screaming and yelling a whole lot, and you can't have two main characters screaming and yelling at everything.
0: That's fair. So, yeah, that's... that is Battlefield Earth. It really... Is not the worst movie of all time, though. As we mentioned earlier, that there are a lot worse things. This plot is, even if it has some holes and some curiosities, yeah. you can follow it just fine. The story it's trying to tell is
1: manageable. It's there. I, I get
0: what they're doing. It, I, I get point A, B, yeah,
1: I, X. It could have been a little bit more clear, uh, to be sure, but. Yeah, it's, like we said, you and I have watched so many movies that are far worse than this. Again, we could probably find movies from 2000 that are way worse than this. And, like, yeah, definitely a movie released the same weekend that was probably worse than this. I think the movie got the backlash that it did. One, yes, because of its connection to Scientology. And also, I would say this movie was released to an absurd amount of theaters. I looked it up. This was put out into, I think, over 3,500 theaters across the nation, which is a crazy amount of distribution. But the story goes that Warner Brothers distributed it, and the movie was already made, so they're like, fuck, we get the distribution rights to this thing for nothing, let's uh, go ahead and make sure it's got a good act and pan and get it out there. So the distribution of the film was $9 million worth of advertising and distribution, which is, as you may have figured out by now, is a bigger budget than many areas of the movie had. The special effects were apparently only $4 million budgeted in this thing, and yet $9 million went into its advertising and distribution. So I would say it is not the worst movie of 2000 or of the decade, but it does have a very stark inverse relationship between its quality and the number of movie theaters it was put into if we're considering what mainstream cinema was looking like back in 2000. I think today, if you amped up the craziness of this movie and put it out there and give it more of a Guardians of the Galaxy meets Mad Max Fury Road kind of feel and gave it a proper budget, this could be an awesome film to release today. But in 2000, not so
0: much. That's fair. Yeah, there are really mediocre original Netflix movies that are sort of batch-released daily that are much worse than Battlefield Oh, for sure. Earth. And so, yeah, I guess my takeaway from reading a lot of the criticism of this film and the reaction that it's somehow the worst movie ever made... Makes me sad, not for the sake of Battlefield Earth, but for the sake of the American movie going audience. Because if this is the worst thing you've ever seen, you are not trying hard enough. Yeah. Try harder.
1: Yeah. If you think this is the worst movie, try harder. Try. Go out and watch some stuff. Try harder. So, before we safe word out London, I want to ask you something. Movies have soundtracks, right? Sure. That's pretty common.
0: Most of them, yeah. Have
1: you ever known a book to have a soundtrack?
0: I feel like maybe I have, actually, but I can't think of...
1: Not as common. Right? Yeah. Well, what if I told you that a certain book we've discussed today had a soundtrack? And that soundtrack... (laughs) Dianetics? No, but same author. And that soundtrack was composed by that author. Lafayette Ronald Hubbard composed music to be played while reading Battlefield Earth.
0: Fuck yes. Oh, L. Hubbs, he just gives and gives.
1: The title of that album? Space Jazz. Fuck yes. Famously, while he was still very much in seclusion and hiding, uh, Laffy Hubbs got some jazz musicians who were themselves Scientologists, brought them in, and using a newly released synthesizer, made an album of music that's meant to be played while you listen to Battlefield Earth. One, it makes no sense because the songs, it's only 45 minutes worth of music, and the songs are only about three minutes each. So you couldn't play it while you're reading the book because it would just be looping over and over again, and there are spoilers to the book in the songs. And however crazy you think this music is, you're not thinking crazy enough. The song that we're going to hear after we say "word out is titled Turl, Master of Security. And I'm just going to let all the listeners out there enjoy it. Because who do we have to thank for this music, for this book, for this movie? Who makes it all happen? Who's the man in the sky?
0: Well, actually, before we do that, I will say apologies to any Scientologists we may have offended. We are openly suppressive people, so don't worry about it. We insult everyone, but in the spirit of that, there is one great giant galactic overlord in the sky that might save us all. So please save me, Zinu. Thing. Donald Chuck Breckley gives it to Cyclo. any need leverage on this stupid animal. Uh,
1: his woman friend. <laughs>
0: Place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space!